everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two roundtables this week. First up, Chad Finn, the fine sports media writer of the Boston Globe and general columnist there as well, and Robert Littell. He is the founder and editor of Black Sports Online. Both of those gentlemen have been on this podcast before, and we had a long Monday Night Football discussion, as well as get into Katie Nolan and some other topics. They are followed by Lindsay Adler, who covers the Mets and Yankees for The Athletic, also formerly of Deadspin, and A.J. Perez, a staff writer for USA Today, who covers many different topics. A.J. has been on the podcast as well. But first up is my longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated, who was um, who made significant sports media news this week. That is Peter King, and he announced to both his site, the people at his site, the MMQB, as well as his bosses at Sports Illustrated, that he will be leaving that publication on June 1st after 29 years and starting a new job with NBC Sports in July. Peter King joins me now in studio on the Sports Media Podcast. Peter, it's been a busy week for you. Richard, great <laughs> to be with you. Thank you for asking. And first of all, you are very kind to come into the studio. We do, one, we don't get a lot of guests who do that. Well, but you, I don't live very far from here. So, so but Peter, you you're know. you're you're a, you're a well-known person and a man of your stature does not have to come into this fine studio with myself and Lou Pellegrino, but you've done it anyway. Yeah. That's why we love you. All right, so I want to start off. There's a lot of ways to go, but first off, and I know you've said this in in um in print form, and you've talked about this a little bit with some of the people who have uh, interviewed you on radio, but why why was this the right time for you to leave Sports Illustrated? You know, Richard, I think there were probably three things. Number one, uh, I really have, I don't want to say soured, but I just sort of had enough with the 24-7, 365 business of covering pro football. Uh, I, I, because obviously at the MMQB, when the draft ends, uh, you know, there's almost three months before the next event, which is training camp. And, uh, you know, I just was thinking this year, particularly after the Super Bowl, when we started thinking of what are we going to do over the dead period, that sort of 10-week period where you have to invent a bunch of stuff. I just thought, man, I really don't want to do that. I don't know why it just got to me this year. But I just didn't, I wasn't that interested in doing it. Mark Moravik, who runs the site with me and is fantastic, uh, he had a great, a couple of great ideas. And all I could think was not a great idea, but in the incredible logistics that it was going to take. Hmm. And so I still love my job. I still love covering what I cover. But I don't really love doing it in May and June. At all. And I don't love doing it throughout a lot of the offseason because so much of it is hype of crapola. And, you know, the day after the draft ends, you know, you're doing, and this is not just a, a chuckle or two, you have serious discussions of the 2019 mock draft or, or that. And, and I just, I just, you know, I just, I've had enough of it. I really have. Um, there were two other things at play. One, uh, I think, you know, in 2013, when we started the MMQB, I brought in some young people, uh, two of whom are still there, um, Robert Klemko and Jenny Varentis. And I either over the years have uh, sort of hired or been part of the hiring process of several other writers. And now 
we have nine writers who are either uh, full-time MMQB people or that we sort of share with SI. And those nine writers, their average age is 29 years, 11 months. Hmm. And so, and I keep thinking to myself, honestly, you know, you know, I, I I want to be able to give them a fair shot. And I really want to be able to say to them, hey, you know, rise in this business. And if I'm going to be there, how fair is that really? I mean, I, I, I'm because I'm going to suck the air out of the room a lot of times. And I'm going to take some of the best assignments, a lot of the best assignments. And, you know, it's I, I think it, quite frankly... Honestly, to have stayed would have been selfish. I think the third reason is that I do believe in this day and age that if you have really good people who work with you and you feel like it might be time to step back a little bit, well, you know, then really what holds you up? And and I believe also, like to me, I think I needed a little jolt. You know, when you're at one place for 29 years, uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to step away and do something else. So I think the combination of those three things, as well as the fact that I've really enjoyed the people I work with part-time at NBC for the last 12 years, and I'm I'm going to enjoy, you know, uh, basically going into NBC and... Uh, you know, working to a bit of a new audience and proving to them that they made the right call and kind of going out on a limb and in some ways inventing a job for me. Um, You've had to make this decision before as to whether you would stay or leave Sports Illustrated. Um, In, you know, obviously as as best you can or as revealing as you want to be, what what was, how did you actually approach this particular decision-making process? Did you... Are there, um, whether it's your wife or other people, did you did you weigh the pros and cons? How did you come to the decision? Um, I mean, my wife has wanted me to work less for a long time. And that was, uh, I wanted to work less too. So I'm not blaming her, blaming, you know, the blame is the wrong word. I'm not putting it on her, I'm not putting it on me. I mean, I knew it was time for me to stop the the whatever the 60 hour a week thing I, I just you know enough especially because the history of my family my father and two brothers were all the three of them were all dead by 65 and I'm 60 um and I I just think this time it was a little bit different because after you've been running a site for five years and it never stops I mean I don't want to, I'm not whining about it because I've had a great job. I love my job. But every day you just wake up and you say, okay, what do we got? You're on vacation. You're thinking about it. How's the site doing? What's, you know, enough. I, I just, it just felt, it felt for the last few weeks, it's kind of felt like this is what I was going to do. I didn't know it really until a couple of weeks ago, but it just sort of felt like this was the right time. How hard did Sports Illustrated try to keep you? very hard. Chris Stone was absolutely awesome. But the thing I really appreciate about him, he didn't put the hard sell on me. I mean, he offered me more money, you know, and at the end of the day, over the next three years, it would have been significantly more money. Wow. But 
to do uh, to do a little bit less work than I'll do at NBC because there would have been no TV involved. It was just I was just going to write Monday Morning Quarterback. But and I give Chris a lot of credit. The reason I give him so much credit is that he said because I, I had been telling him, you know, it just might be time. And he goes, okay, I'm not going to try to pressure you or push you into a decision that you really don't want to make. He was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But I think he also knew, especially in a time of transition for SI, it's, it's kind of cool for them to go into a different direction. And how about if you're going to these new buyers and you say, okay, you know, covering pro football is our most important thing. We have nine people who have not turned 40 yet, average age, 30 years old. And these people are some of the best who cover pro football. We've, we've got them all. We've, you know, and, you know, I'm as confident sending Jenny Varentis out as I would be sending me out on a story with the NFL. And so, I mean, that's why I think that Chris knows he's in good shape. All right, let me let me sort of play devil's advocate. Devil's advocate's not the right phrase here, but you said it would be selfish of you to stay. But one of the things I know about you over the years is part of the reason you had stayed before is that you are well aware of your importance digitally to Sports Illustrated. This is I'm not blowing smoke at you. I worked there with you for 19 years. You during the football season are create a lot of traffic for that site. That's real monetization that the site can have. As great as Jenny is and Robert are, and Jenny's a friend, of, a good friend of mine, and I, I think the world of all those guys, they're very talented. Going to new buyers, I can make the argument that if I have Peter King as my lead NFL voice, that's a pretty good sell. So was there a part of you that yes. thought about, like, yes. man, am I abandoning yes. the place I... I, I worked for so long. Definitely. And that bothered me to some degree, but what was going to be the reason next time? Yeah. There was going to be a reason next time, just like the last couple times there's been reasons. And I just, I can't, I mean, I would have been doing this place a disservice. I just would have. I would have been, I would have had a crappy attitude half the time. I mean, I I may not have shown it that much because I'm able to to sort of put that aside, but, you know, Richard, it just was time, and it is it. I just am going to tell you, it would be beyond selfish if they ended up losing one or two of these people because the opportunities that they thought should be there and maybe could be there at another media entity, if if they got offered a job and said, "Well, I got this this ceiling above me named Peter King, and he's going to work here till the day he dies," so. What are my chances? And so that's why I never – I thought about that a little bit, but I, I just had to start thinking for myself a little bit. How confident are you that the MMQB exists heading forward in the – let's start with the near term? I mean, I, I'm confident, but I have – I'm going to be – I'll be totally, absolutely honest with you. I don't have any inside information right? because I am not – I purposely don't want to have anything to do – like I'm working until June 1st. And whatever Chris wants to ask me, you know, beyond what I'm going to be writing, whatever anybody ever wants to ask me or anything like that, but Mark Moravik, Gary Gramling, Bet Marston, you know, the full-time editors who are staying, that's their job. It's Chris Stone's job to figure out what this is after me. It's just not my job. So – that's that's their 
Uh, that's their bailiwick, and it should be their bailiwick. I shouldn't have any responsibility in what becomes of this. I want to ask you about Sports Illustrated, Peter. This is um, a place that's very meaningful to both of us. Um, and in full transparency, when I was um, contemplating my decision between Sports Illustrated and The Athletic, Peter King is somebody who I called. Um, and, you know, Peter, now we can talk about that conversation uh, because I'm sort of, you know, green lighting it here. Um, and I told you what I thought were sort of my pluses and minuses about Sports Illustrated, and I told you, and it still is true to this day, it was an excruciating decision. It um, had to be. And the one thing, and I, I do want to ask you about this, it, it seems for everybody who's there, and again, you're moving to another place, so you're going to have sort of different responsibilities and different things to think about in July, but the the main reason I left was that... The one thing that Sports Illustrated could not, the Chris Stone and the bosses there could not guarantee me, of course, is what, where is it going? Who's going to buy it? And this was even, I left even before Meredith formally announced that they were going to sell Sports Illustrated to some bidder. When, um, when you know you, what's interesting about ahead. this discussion? Yeah. This obviously was part of my fact finding. Right. And I called some people who I thought might have some valuable slash interesting information. And what I was hearing back sort of in the, you know, in February, March, was that, you know, uh, they might be in for a huge transition and that they, uh, they might have to change a lot you know, might have to start doing more esports and things like that and really make a huge difference. Yeah. Gam- and sports transition. gambling or something. Yes, like that, yeah. Right. But as I got closer to the decision and I talked to two more people about this, I was uh, I was disabused of that notion. And I was told that it's highly likely that this place is going to be sold to one of two or three people, I guess, and and I don't know what's happened in the last two or three weeks. It might be done. I really don't know. But this place is going to be sold to people who are not going to turn it upside down and start shaking it like a snow globe. They're, they want Sports Illustrated to be great again as Sports Illustrated. So I believe it's going to be a lot more close, a lot closer to the latter than the former. We'll see. I don't know that. But at the end of the day, it had zero to do with what I was going to do uh, because the other things involved were just significantly more important to me. Where do you think um, – where do you think – what Sports Illustrated's place today in 2018, in your opinion, 2019? Um, you know, Michael McCambridge wrote about SI for yeah, the ringer Too much recently. of an old bit for me. When yeah, I, I mean, and I had a long conversation with him. And look, I, I, I'm not. Michael had an idea that SI should really never have made this mega change, and all that. And I understand Michael is a romantic about SI, right? Uh, as many people are, but Michael hasn't been in the building either, right? And Michael hasn't gone on the sales calls that I have gone on in year three of the MMQB. I went on 19 sales calls over a three-plus-week period, and I closed one. And so, I mean, 
look. You'd be a terrible madman character, by the way. With well, here's the point. I came back and I told Stone, I told Chris Stone, I said, you got to use somebody else. I suck at this. I mean, my batting average is 050. And I said, you know, you got it. And he goes, ah, calm down, calm down. And actually, years four and five, we did we did a little better. Yeah. But 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 be that as it may, my whole point is, one of the things I disagreed with Michael is that Sports Illustrated can exist on the kind of stories that are, let's say, Greg Bishop and Ben Baskin's Super Bowl story, which I thought was absolutely superb. Yep. Um, I just am not sure that writing about an event four days after it happened consistently is going to work anymore. Okay, so I'll give you my view. And we were just talking about this this as we record this. Yesterday, uh, we had our weekly planning meeting at the MMQB, and I came up with an idea that I is not going to be an idea for me uh, to, you know, to execute because I'll be gone. But it's an idea, what I have been trying to think of more than anything else is, is stuff that works for the MMQB and Sports Illustrated, that there's a chunk that can work for both parties, and we can have this kind of the the marriage of the two places, and it can work really well, because I'm just telling you, some of the people who we have, their ideas... Uh, you know, are just so good. But, and so I, I don't want to spill the beans on what the idea is, but my whole thought is we have to think of ideas that are so different and so new and so interesting. You know, like two years ago, we did something that, and I can't tell you whether it made any difference on the newsstand or not, but they gave us an issue. Chris Stone handed the MMQB an issue, and we did week one of the NFL season in 2016. And what I thought was the coolest thing that we did is we basically did 24 hours, uh, you know, around opening day. Right. You know, and I started it on Saturday night at the Houston Texans uh, team meeting before their first game of the year, listening to Bill O'Brien's message to his team and writing about it. And we went throughout, you know, that night, the next morning, the day, everything. And so, look— Again, I don't have any idea if things like that uh, increase circulation or whatever, but my whole thought is we need to be different. We need to be new. We need to be fresh, and we need to bring you into the lives of people who we cover more than ever. That's why I love reading Lee Jenkins. He's always inside somebody. You know, he does such a great job on that. Um, I mean, we need to be where... Um, you, you know, where uh, Dwight Clark is saying goodbye to a lot of his 49ers. We need to be with me when I go visit Tom Brady in Montana a week after the Super Bowl. We need to be different. Not only just the New York Times, the magazine of record. We need to do different things that are high-impact things. That's how I think SI survives, and not just on the occasional and very important newsworthy things, um, you know, like John Wertheim and the Panthers and, and things like that, but just on taking you into the game in, in ways you've never been taken into the game before. You say we. Is it going to be hard to not say we? Yes. I still feel like we. We were at this meeting yesterday, and I finally I just said, I don't know whether to call us we, you, they. I mean, I don't know what to say. 
But I'll always feel like we because, I mean, I love that place. When I was saying, when I was telling everybody last, late last Thursday afternoon what I was doing, I mean, I just got, I, 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 you know, I talked about everybody. I talked about Stone. I talked about our editors, all our writers. And finally, I got to Kaylin Kaylers, the youngest person on our staff. She's 24. She came on our staff as a... Uh, as an editorial assistant, basically my assistant. And she was going to do all social media. She did a lot of social media. She was a cheerleader at Northwestern. She's a spunky friggin' spark plug of a of a, a fun person to be around and just, you know, never has a bad day, always picks up the phone. I mean, I've called her uh, late at night. I mean, she just, she gets the job done. But I started thinking about her, and all, and it just rushed to me. And if I, I mean, I would have just started bawling. But what I was really thinking was, you know, we have created this thing with all these new people who are still, in many ways, rough around the edges, and not really in any way your classic Sports Illustrated hires. Right. You know, Sports Illustrated doesn't hire people who are twenty four years old without a great writing background. Uh, to to be writers at SI. So and and Kaylin does a lot of things. But I just started to think, we've got, you know, we've had Emily Kaplan, Jenny Varentis, now Kaylin Kaler. We've had three women in five years. We've got two African American writers, Robert Klemko, Jonathan Jones. Um, so I mean, I think one of the things that we've really tried to do is we've tried to uh be uh properly attentive to being egalitarian uh, and to and to try our best to change what is still an overwhelmingly white male dominated business. What was it like for you um, when you made the announcement or when Sports Illustrated made the announcement um, to see the reaction? You know, it was a little bit of like you're almost at your own funeral. You're moving to NBC, but yet it was I'm, i i i found it fascinating to see the responses on twitter so i wonder what it was like for you the subject of this i was so busy sort of the rest of that day uh that i didn't see everything really until about midday the next day and i was blown away because as you know richard um i am a bit of a um i'm a i'm a bit of a uh of a bad guy on Twitter in terms of, I, I I think there's a lot of people who really love to hate me and poke and prod me. Right, we'll get to that. Yeah, um, which you know is fine, but I've never had a bunch of people like that. I'm, hundreds, maybe. I don't know. I never. I don't. I don't know. I just look through it, and I I was so shocked. And some of the letters I got this week, one of them just made me cry. Um, you know, about a guy who um, who wrote from Texas who, um, you know, told friends that his son got married in California, but he never told his friends that his son uh, was gay and married a man. Hmm. And he just said, I, I really owe you a lot for that, or whatever he said. And I just, that really made me tear up. Uh, so... I, I mean, I just, I was surprised at sort of the the universal uh, niceness and respect, and it really touched me. It really, 
it it really made me realize that all the years I've been doing this and all the times that I've been up until 5.45 a.m. getting the last note in there, it made me just think, you know what, it's been worth it. Every bit of it has been worth it. And so... What do you think... Um... What do you think over the years you've been? Um, now lightning rod's not the right word, but pe- I think it is. Pe- people have an opinion of what you do, yeah. good, bad, or indifferent, and they they are very quick to express it on social media. Why? Well, I is mean, it fame? I think is it, is I think it? there's probably three. Uh, there's probably three reasons. Uh, as you asked me that question, three things just very quickly came to mind. One is that. Um, most football columns don't have anything else in them other than football. Yeah, that's a good point. And my column has, if it's eight thousand words, you know, six or seven hundred words almost every week are going to be about life and about a story of the week and my favorite beer I had that week and maybe saying something uh, negative about what's going on in the country from Washington. Um, and so other people don't do that and i've been consistently harangued for that and i've always just said i said listen one day a few years ago um i looked at all of the other columns about the nfl that ran on a monday and just for fun i took the longest one and the longest one was 2900 words Hmm. on another site that week my column was about 8,700 words, and I think 830 words were personal non-football thoughts. So I just said to myself, and I never wrote this, I never, but I've said this to a few people, I said, so my column, basically, if you take away everything and it's only football, in this particular week I looked at it, had three times as much football as any other column on the internet that day, and yet you get angry because I write 700 words about something else. To each his own. Uh, you're not going to please everybody. I think one of the other things is that I, I, I write about politics sometimes, and I write about how we ought to be ashamed of ourselves for not doing anything about school shootings, about guns in this country. We've become completely cowed and, uh, and controlled by the National Rifle Association. Um, and, you know, so everybody's going to hear that and say, oh, he's anti-Second Amendment. In no way am I anti-Second Amendment. I'm anti-semi-automatic uh, weapons being able to be sold to people who are 19 or 20 or 23 or 24 without comprehensive universal background checks. It's sickening. It is just totally sickening to see the President of the United States fall into line and just get cowed by the National Rifle Association. It shouldn't happen, but it happens. And look, you have every right in the world to hate my guts. The 35% who will hate my guts for saying that, it's a free country, you can hate me, but you're not going to stop me. And the third thing I would say about the hatred is, uh, and again, This is something that, Richard, I can't prove this, but I can feel it. And that is, I think a lot of people who have been my peers over the years, I'm not that close to anymore. And, you know, I think, and I'm just going to tell you, I think once you start making money, and a lot more money than other people make, 
that affects your relationship with some people. Mm. And I believe that has affected the opinions of some people in our business about me and about what they have thought about me. But I can't prove that. I don't know that it's true. It's just something I've felt um, ever since. I mean, it's been a while since I started working on TV. And you start differentiating yourself from a lot of your peers. And uh, so, I don't know. Though That's kind of how I felt. I appreciate it. I want to ask you two things. Uh, first on politics, um, anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm um, pretty transparent about um, how I feel about the current president of the United States and certain issues I'll um, tweet out there. I don't, though, write about it in um, media comms. Um, and that really, honestly, Peter, wasn't like a conscious choice. It just It just is sort of how it has happened. But you do in your... Sports comment, sports commentary is not the right word, but you do in your football columns. Was there some kind of conscious decision where you just decided, like, I'm doing this and the fallout will be what it is? Because it's it's interesting that I think that people, it's a weird thing here, but people, I think, would be more impacted by your decision to do that for whatever reason on SI's platform than your own social media platform. It doesn't make any sense, but why is that? Because I, I think you get more vitriol because you put it in a, as you said, a football column versus your own Facebook or Twitter feed. I really can't answer that. I don't know what the difference would be, um, but I just know that, look, in my opinion, you start writing about this stuff on Twitter, it's a it's a rabbit hole. Right. It just, it never ends. Um, you know, when I express an opinion about Ben Roethlisberger saying something dumb about the Steelers drafting of Mason Rudolph, and it was dumb, I mean, it just, it, it goes on for six hours. You know, I say one thing, I, you know, when I make a comment on it, I answer some, and so I bet I got 500 people on both sides of that. And so, look, you're just not, you're not going to please everybody. Richard, I, I guess the way I look at it is this, you know, I'm going to give my opinion, and uh, I understand if some people are upset by by an opinion about politics or about life or about anything uh, infiltrating a sports column, and I totally get it. I understand, but I just think it's too important to sit idly by and to never talk about some of the things that we see going on in our country. I um, When the decision came down, from I shouldn't say the decision when when people learned that you were leaving Sports Illustrated for NBC, one of the things I saw was Norman Chad. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but he's a um, he's a longtime uh, sports media writer mm-hmm. for the Washington Post. Now works for ESPN, and he he really sort of went hard on you on Twitter, saying Peter King's conflict conflicted of interest, factually challenged, hidden agenda driven. MMQB column is now moving from Sports Illustrated to NBC. A lot of times you have faced, whether it's Deadspin and some other places, criticism for being an access journalist, too access-oriented, um, a shill for the league. What's, what, is your, what is your response um, to those who have suggested that? Um, well, I guess it would be that, you know— um, Let's talk about the whole access journalism uh, thing, which uh, I'm, I'm, I've asked plenty of people this question when this topic has come up. 
I chafe a little bit at the quote access journalism tag um, because I think what it what it says is that we don't trust what you're saying because in order to get this access, you had to give up all uh, objectivity to get inside this team. Right. Okay. So I'll explain what I do when I try to do this. I'll explain what I did with the Dallas Cowboys two years ago, what I did with the 49ers a year ago. I say, if you have reasons to not allow me to see behind the curtain, you shouldn't do, we should not do this because I am not going to write anything that is phony. I'm not going to do that. Now, if three times in the course of a draft weekend, you want something to be off the record, I can respect that. But I can't be doing it five, six, eight times. Can't do that. You, If you're going to let me in here, you have to let me write about what I see, period. And you got to trust me. That's it. And so all these people who I think have a problem with that and who think, oh, access journalism is bad, uh, you know, I think it's total hogwash. Um, now, um, I just, I've also asked this question too. Read what I wrote about the San Francisco 49ers and about John Lynch's first draft as a general manager. We did two stories. I'm going to guess total we wrote 7,000 words. And I just will tell you, if you look at those 7,000 words and you think, oh, we shouldn't be doing that stuff because you're compromised, you're giving away way too much, you're doing this, you're, you're wrong. You're just wrong. I, when I make these deals with people and I go behind the scenes and I go behind the curtain, I mean, which I've been doing since 1995 with the Green Bay Packers, a week in the life of the Packers. I've done it with an officiating crew in 2013. I did it with Carson Palmer in 2016, a week in the life of a quarterback. I, I just, I mean, I, I just find it hard to believe that people would read those things and say those things are bullcrap. I just, you guys have your own opinion, I'll have mine. Um, and if you think those are not good contributions to the to the journalism, to the coverage of pro football, you're full of it, period. Um, your other question was about, uh, I'm too close to the league, I'm in bed with the league, whatever it is. You know, look, uh, I don't know. You know, there, 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 are, um, there are story lines and plot lines that everybody believes, and there's nothing I can do to change them at all. I try to cover every story I cover right down the middle. I try to be as fair as I can to all entities. And a lot of people over the years have taken that to be that I'm too close to the league. Um, people thought that um, my uh, uh, piece uh, uh, on Roger Goodell, whatever, seven years ago was a hagiography, hey hagiography, hey whatever that word is. Um, and I totally understand that. Um, and and look, I approach a story and I write the story the way I think it should be written. People are going to have to think what they want to think. On the other hand, if I were a person looking at me, I would say you've got 
you've done two things that have been really wrong, and they both have been in favor of the NFL. And I would understand that. I got a, a significant fa- uh, fact in the Ray Rice uh, story wrong um, when he was uh, when he visited the league office and had his hearing, and then I got a significant fact wrong when I confirmed Chris Mortensen's story about the footballs being two uh, po- uh, more than two pounds over uh, uh, under under pressure, and in both cases I admit it. I admitted it uh, in one case. Uh, the Patriots case, I offered my resignation to Chris Stone, uh, and they said no, uh, but I would have resigned because that is something you cannot get wrong. I got it wrong. I deserve all the criticism for that that comes my way, and I don't shy away from it. And I'm uh, when I think of my career at SI, those are two things I'm ashamed of, hmm. totally ashamed, because... That can't happen. You can't get facts like that wrong. Was I told something by someone who I trusted that turned out to be wrong? Yes. It's not their fault. It's my fault. No one cares why you got something wrong. I got it wrong. If the source that I talked to is wrong, doesn't matter. I got it wrong. How will working in NBC, if at all, change your um, Monday column? Well, that, does the does the fact that they have a rights holder relationship has? Well, That's a really good question. Did it come Did it come up at all in your discussions with NBC? Never. Okay, so the, you never. feel confident that your your you well, what you want to write, you can write. I think I think I do, but this sounds crazy. I mean, we have not had a discussion other than you know we want your column, right? That's the only discussion we've had. Now I've got some changes planned for the column. Do you want to reveal them yet or no? No, okay. because I haven't I haven't talked to NBC about but them yet. Before you go into just one thing, will it still will the main column still be a Monday column? Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. All yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I, I I mean, it's not going to be any revolutionary changes, but there are going to be some differences that I want to do in the column. I think they're going to be fine with them, but I have not talked to them yet. So sometime in June, I'll find out if they're okay with them. Um, but no, I, I I don't expect the column to be very much different. In terms of tone or opinion at all, what um what what what's the television component of this? What kind of features can we expect from you on NBC Sports? Well, last year, probably my two favorite features that I did last year, I met Jason Witten at his house at seven a.m. with a crew on a Monday. They had just played Atlanta. It was November, hmm. and they were playing the following Sunday, and so I spent. Monday from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's his rehab day. And his whole, I wanted to say, how in the world have you played the last 14 years and never missed a game and missed one practice? How is that humanly possible? So he said, it's all in what I do Monday. And I saw him do uh, dry needling that day. I saw him do cupping you know, I saw him do uh, painful massage. Mm. I saw him do uh, uh, water rehab uh, with a very, very strong uh, jet stream of water uh, in a pool at the Cowboys facility. I saw him do all this stuff and, and a lot of other stuff for like seven hours. And and then I showed... Well, Richard, I'll tell you what was really cool about that story. 
you know how features are on television and pregame shows. I guess I'm just guessing the story was two hour, two minutes forty five seconds, right. something like that. Right. But I requested that day. I said, "Can we do a longer version?" There's so much, you know, that you left on the cutting room floor. Two minutes forty five seconds of seven hours of of tape and following him. It was really good right. being in the car talking about the influence of Tom Brady on his life. Oh, that's cool. I mean, really kind of cool stuff. Yeah. And so I said, what if we do an extended version on video? And so we did it. It was like a 19-minute story. Wow. And it was great. It was so much. There was so much stuff in there. And uh, so, so we learned something from that. And I said, hey, listen, because so many people are going to watch this on video, let's not just kill, you know, all the stuff that we're not going to use, you know, on TV Let's take the, some, you know, the A minus stuff, if I'd even call it that, <laughs> right. and put it on video. And people love that. So they did that. They loved it. And then I, I also, the last two years, I've done two long stories at Christmas. La, uh, two years ago, I did Sam White and his heart transplant. Yeah, that was a great story. Uh, yeah, thanks. And last year, I did Deshaun Watson and coming from a Habitat for Humanity home. And so those have been like nine or ten minutes long because it's the season and they want to do stories that are extended pieces about something they feel is important. So this year I'm going to do four, five, six max, probably probably four. I'll do a Christmas story and I'll do three other stories in which I hope we get to show, like Jason Witten, a side of a player a big player in the NFL or a big coach that you just would never know. Since you got to st- spend this extended time with him and since he obviously is in the news, what is your sense of how Witten will be as a Monday Night Football analyst? Well, that I think it's a great question because Jason Witten is really one of the nicest human beings I've met in or out of football. He's a gentleman. Uh, he is loved, well-respected. Who could boo Jason Witten? And he's just, he's like Mr. Perfect. And I think that's going to be a difficult thing for him. I mean, I have, I'm sure he's accepted the fact that he's going to have to say some bad things about people sometimes. Right. Now, one of the failings, in my opinion, of John Gruden is that everybody was all world. Right, yeah. You know, and so I think for Jason Witten to be successful long term, he has to, uh, if he sees something he doesn't like, he's got to say it. I think he will say it because he's an honest person. But I think that's going to be the challenge for Jason Witten. What's in terms of your conversation with him? What's his personality like? What do you expect him to be on air? Is he loud? Is he soft? Is he analytical? Is he? He's very. He's very analytical, and I think uh, I remember. I've said this to a couple of people. I said it to Rodney Harrison once before he got into TV, um, and I've said it to a few people who were making the the move. I said, you know you're really a smart person and you're very analytical about football, but you've got to be able to say it in eight to 11 seconds. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. Very. Now, in my opinion, Richard, the one thing that I think Witten has going for him is that he's very, he's very smart and he understands all aspects of football. I think to him it's going to be about cutting down 
uh, you know, forgetting the superfluous stuff and the niceties and really getting to the point right away. I think one of the things that Tony Romo did well, even though he's still a work in progress, is that he has no problems blurting out what he thinks. You know, even though sometimes he 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 announces syllables on television that do not exist in the English language <laughs> or I think in any other language. But I think I think he's gonna do a good job. But again, Parcells has always said they don't sell insurance for this kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, I want to finish up with three football-related topics. The first one is um, Brady and Belichick, which seems to be uh, a, a relationship that is of interest to people uh, far outside of New England. Um, it's very hard for me, and obviously, you know, I'm talking to one of the preeminent football writers in America. So um, it's very hard for me to get a read on the Patriots this year. I don't know if maybe you probably have a better feel, but so I'm just I'm fascinated by this relationship. And what do you expect? Because it it you know I know Tom wants to play for a while. I, I don't know when Bill's going to retire, but it, it like the it does something. It felt it feels like eras shifted this off season. That's my read on it. Now maybe they'll end up winning the Super Bowl again, and and it'll all work out. But something's going on there. I agree with you. And I've not talked to Brady this offseason one time, so I don't have any personal knowledge. But I wrote in my column on Monday, I said, you know, if I if this were me, again, I don't know this, but if this were me, this is how I would think. Okay, I'm 40 years old. I'm going to be 41 this year. I'm coming off a season in which I won the MVP, and I was a pretty important figure in us getting to our eighth Super Bowl in the last 17 years. So, I mean, can we please stop with the 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 whatever childishness? And look, I'm not there, so I don't know. Could we please stop with the, you know, sort of using me sometimes as a punching bag? Um, can we please stop with, you know, uh, the pillorying of, you know, the guy I use as my trainer and the guy who I trust the most about my body, Alex Guerrero? But but again, I'm not there, so I don't know. This is a guess on my part. Um, but I, you know, I think Richard, I think it is positively, absolutely amazing that for 18 football seasons, Bill Belichick, Robert Kraft, and Tom Brady have been together making mostly beautiful music. Hmm. And if I asked you this question, uh. How long do you think Eddie DeBartolo, Bill Walsh, and Joe Montana were, were together? Uh, boy, uh, eight years? Ten. Ten, okay. So these, you know, Brady, Belichick, Kraft have already been together eight years longer. Wow. Than the, probably the people, the, 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 the trio that most people would say, well, that's got to be the greatest of all time, right. at least until these guys. So I, I don't think... I think the surprise is that it's lasted this long. Where do you see the um, gender discrimination complaints and the story of NFL cheerleaders going? Does this does will this continue to um, get I bigger? Think the, or, or I think is, NFL, I think NFL teams should put more clothing on their cheerleaders, and I think the NFL teams who employ these cheerleaders should start paying them as employees, not. Uh, not oh you're so lucky to have a job here's ten dollars um I, I just I mean it's distasteful the whole thing is distasteful really 
And the NFL should, uh, all the teams that want to have cheerleaders, um, the NFL should establish a universal policy so that, let's say, the Oakland Raiders are not saying football's fabulous females. And, you know, and, and I, I mean, look, Kaylin Kaler on our staff, she was a college cheerleader. We were talking about this over the weekend. I mean, I, 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 just, will, I just will say this. You know, if you look at a cheerleading uniform at a Big Ten school and compare it to a cheerleading uniform of the New York Jets or the, the Oakland Raiders or whatever, there's about one-third the amount of clothes, okay? I mean, this should not be a swimsuit shoot. You know, this it, it's, it's just, you know, if you're going to have cheerleaders, okay, have cheerleaders. I personally am not crazy about having cheerleaders at games, but bah humbug. Uh, but you've got to have some strictures. You've got to have some rules. I just, I, I just think it's too easy for these women, both in terms of salary and in terms of their personal lives, to be abused. Yeah, the salary is a disgrace. Um, there's no argument. There's no way around that. Um, the last one for me is. Um, and this could happen certainly in the next couple of years as you're covering the league, Peter. Is but how do you if if um, if we see sports gambling becoming more mainstream, where the ability to gamble is in multiple states, not just in Las Vegas? How do you think that impacts the NFL? Whether um, uh, whether you want to take it in terms of interest, whether you want to take it in terms of the NFL somehow wants to get in this. Uh, business, which you know, potentially could be billions of dollars. What do you think the impact of more legalized sports betting would be on the NFL? I mean, not not very much, really. Really? Wow. That's I interesting. mean, just that the NFL, just like the NBA, is going to try to get a piece of it. And everybody's view in the NFL has always been, oh boy, we don't want gambling. But if you start telling them, hey, uh, Roger Goodell, remember when you said you want this to be a $25 billion exactly. dollar business? That's the way to get by whatever I said... You know, it's and Richard. You know, I'm reminded this year of the rights fees for Thursday night football, <laughs> where I'm just going to guess this, okay? Because I truly don't know. Okay, you might know this, but I believe that NBC and CBS probably, probably offered the NFL about a flat rate you know, compared to their last deal. Right. So in other words, maybe a little bit more, but not very much. I think I just they were both I, losing money. I don't mean to interrupt you. I think honestly, if you put the executives of those networks on Truth Serum, I think they're happy that they're not. Oh, no game. question. Yeah. No question. But the point I'm making is that it took, you know, some sort of I, I don't know what Fox got other than you know, this deal for the draft that ended up, in my opinion, really hurting ESPN. Yeah. And the NFL, I mean, really, I think the NFL and what they've done to ESPN, this is just my thought. Yeah, they stuck it Is them. just, uh, overall, yeah. I mean, ESPN has paid them $83 jillion. They always get a lesser game than Sunday night. Right. They, I mean, and so, look, my only point about this is the NFL is always going to do they're always going to err on the side of money. And in my opinion, if they can make a lot of money gambling, all of a sudden, oh, we see nothing wrong with gambling. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is where leagues sort of their moral compass um, 
you know, changes And really, on honestly, honestly, you know, just tell me this. I want to know. What is wrong with gambling on NFL games when everybody gambles on NFL games anyway? Right. And 43 million people are in fantasy football leagues right now this year. And every one of them, except maybe the one that's run by nuns in Tuckwila, Washington, <laughs> every one of them has a financial element to it. So there's money involved in every one of those. I mean, it's it's totally ridiculously naive to say that, oh, gambling, that's really going to hurt the integrity of football. It's it, it's happening already. Just just it's like I, and I, look, I, we will find out the long term impact of the legalization of marijuana in states around the country and it's a different story altogether but in my opinion it's not going to lead to the decline of the human race no <laughs> nor will uh gambling on nfl games uh out front and legally lead to anything other than the owners making more money have you been to tuck Tuckwile, Washington, by the way, whatever that town is. Uh, it's a suburb of Seattle, so I've seen it on road signs. I don't know. I thought of it. I was going to use Dubuque, Iowa, but... It's too, I, uh, it's, everybody goes to Dubuque, so yeah. I, like, I like that one. Uh, would you have taken Baker Makefield as your number one pick if you were Dorsey? Yes. You would have? Unequivocally, absolutely. Wow. Is it because are you too starry-eyed from the series that you guys have done on him? Or? No, no, not at all. But in my opinion, look, I don't watch a lot of football, so I can't sit here and say he's X percent better right. than Sam Darnold. But, um, you know, I'm just going to tell you the story. My takeaway from Cleveland, uh, here's, here's, here's what John Dorsey did in Cleveland. Okay. See, this is one of these things, you know, that I wish, honestly, that Malcolm Gladwell would study. Wow. Okay. Like the wisdom of crowds right. or the idiocy of crowds in this case. You know, when the NFL, oh boy, we can't have a six foot five ace inch quarterback. Can't have that. You know, don't give me Drew Brees. Don't give me Russell Wilson. The vast majority of them don't work. Okay. And so John Dorsey asked Elliot Wolf, his number one trusted guy he has on his staff, and he asked Scott McLuhan, who we brought in this year as a consultant because he trusts him about quarterbacks. And John Dorsey did this same thing. He, he and these other two people, along with Alonzo Highsmith, you know, a longtime respected scout, what he said to them all was, listen, I want you to do all of these quarterbacks. I want you to grade them, scout them, judge them, and then I want your reports, and I don't want you to talk to anybody on this staff. I don't want you to talk to each other. I don't want you, whatever. It was easy for Elliot Wolf. He already had it done because in Green Bay, they were looking at quarterbacks this year because right. Aaron Rodgers is getting up there, contract, blah, blah, blah. Uh, not that they're in any way getting rid of Aaron Rodgers, but he was scouting the quarterbacks. So he did it, and they all did it. And all four men, all four, had Baker Mayfield number one. Wow, interesting. Everyone. And and the other part of this is Elliot Wolf had the golden line to me. He goes, if you're going to tell me that a guy who I think is appreciably better than Sam Darnold, appreciably better that I should pick Sam Darnold because he's two inches taller. Sorry, not going to do that. Hmm. Uh, before we get out here, is there anything else you want to add? I, I will say just uh, sort of publicly, um, we worked together for a long time. Uh, it was an immense um, pleasure for me to be part of the early days in the MMQB. Uh, it was 
you know, it was it, 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 it both of us know this. It was very hard within Sports Illustrated, such a long established place to be part of something new and groundbreaking. And even though I had a small contribution, it was great. It was really one of the best things I did because it was just exciting to see something newly created. You've been a great colleague and friend to me. And um, and the other, and you know, I, I know you leave that place with obviously mixed feelings, but you have you know, screw the Norman Chads and all that stuff. Your your legacy there, I think, in my opinion, is how your colleagues feel about you and the fact that you, and I've said this about Bill Simmons too, for all the criticism that both of you guys take, um, there's something really important, in my opinion, in sports media about using your um, standing or if you want to call it fame and creating jobs and worlds for others. And you did that at the MMQB. And, you know, whether it's Jenny or Robert, all those, you, you, you have helped game change their careers. And that, to me, is an amazing legacy. Most of us don't have that opportunity. And those of us who might have that opportunity, a lot of times don't even take that opportunity. They just sure to, you know, you sort of collect the checks and move on, which is fine. But that's something I, that's probably the thing I respected most about you is that you took your name in the NFL and then you created this whole other place, which has now led to, more than a dozen jobs, basically. Yeah, so that's well, something I respect. I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. And, you know, things similar things have been said in the last few days, and I'm very appreciative. But all I know is this, that the media world is changing. We better change with it, and we better get young people to figure out how the next couple of generations are going to do things, you know, very strange things like actually reading. Hmm. And we need, in order to do that, who's best to figure it out? Well, I want the 24-year-old kid from Northwestern. I want, you know, Clemco. I want Connor Orr. I want Jonathan Jones. I want Jenny Vrentis. I wanted Emily Kaplan. You know, all the, all the people on our staff, I, they're much better suited. They're out and about on weekends. They know. They understand. And I think they give us the best chance. And, you know... The one other thing I would just say this, I mean, this never happens without Sports Illustrated really expending an awful lot of money and energy over five years to make this thing happen. Definitely. And so without a place to do this, I could have any idea I want, but it's not going to work unless somebody foots the bill, SI foot, uh, footed the bill or whatever it is. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, thank one, you. One of the legacies that uh, it'll be under Paul Fichtenbaum and Chris Stone will be that they created, uh, they created this project. Peter King, of course, uh, is a senior writer at the moment for Sports Illustrated and the MMQB, which he who's going to listen to all that? Come on. What do you mean? This whole podcast? You, come on. Who's going to? People well, don't want to hear this for 55 minutes. I can tell you this that. Whole, this by the way, after you, there's like another hour and a half. Oh so, no, no. Yeah. The, the, trust me. You no ju- way. You, ju- you just spent. You just <laughs> eloquently stated how great it was to do 19 minutes with Witten online, and now you're telling me <laughs> to keep the podcast to three minutes. Uh, and you, you ruined my uh, outro here. All right, Peter King's a C- he is going to be heading to NBC in July, but he's of course um, the creator, founder, editor of the MMQB. He's been a great colleague to um, many of us at Sports Illustrated over the years. Peter, um, uh, as I move uh, north to Toronto, we will uh, our paths will not cross in person as much, but I will definitely. Uh, stay in touch. Thanks very much for coming in today and doing this. Sounds good. Hey, let's do an hour next May. 
All right, <laughs> I may, I may, I'll be calling you from. Uh, I'll probably be calling you after LeBron James has destroyed the Raptors again. So. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. All right, well, back in the studio. My thanks to Peter King for what was really a great conversation. I appreciate him coming into the studio in New York to do that. And now let's head out to the start of our roundtable with Chad Finn and Robert Littell. All right, and we head to the first of our roundtables. And we start with Robert Littell, who's been on this podcast before. He's the founder and editor of Black Sports Online. You can find him on Twitter at BSO. And Chad Finn, America's uh, sports media podcast guest. <laughs> he, is, um, he is, of course, a sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe. You find him on Twitter at Globe Chad Finn, G-L-O-B-E, Chad Finn. Uh, Robert, Chad, welcome back to the podcast. I'm, um, I'm, I'm very excited you guys are on because I wanted to talk to somebody about Monday Night Football. We now finally have the booth in place, the full booth in place. Joe Tessitore is the play-by-play. Broadcaster Jason Witten, former Cowboys tight end, is the analyst in the booth. Booger McFarland is the field analyst for Monday Night Football. That is a new position for Monday Night Football. And Lisa Salters is the sideline reporter. Chad, I will start with you. Just general impressions of what ESPN did here. Uh, well, there's such a great wild card in that. We have no idea what Jason Witten's capable of. I know he gets the uh, gets the annual Dallas Cowboys star who gets a prime uh, boot <laughs> spot when he retires. Uh, this friend started by Tony Romo here. I guess maybe even Aikman uh, started it when he ended up at Fox 20 years ago, whatever it was. But... Uh, uh, I he how do you know what he's capable of? We have uh, really no sense for that. And as you know, even for a guy stepping into a a smaller broadcast role, you know the, the fourth or fifth broadcast team on Fox or CBS or whatever, uh, sometimes it takes a year to uh, adjustment if you're good good at it at all. So uh, he is the, the the one to me where I don't know if you can really judge because you don't know what. ESPN is going to get there. Tessator is a total pro. He's going to do a good job. Lisa Salters, we, we know her, too. She's a, a terrific at the sideline thing. But uh, uh, Witten's the big wild card, and Booker McFarlane is a little bit lesser degree. So uh, I guess you really have to wait and see. Uh, he must be, you know, he must have really wowed them in his uh, in his tryouts. And, and Tessator is the, the play-by-play guy in that. So I imagine maybe they had a little bit of chemistry right away. But uh, for the most part, it's a mystery just because we, we don't know what he's, uh, what he can do in this role. Robert, same thing. General impressions. Um, you know, I think they're trying to recreate the, the Tony Romo phenomenon uh, uh, with Jason Witten. Um, I also think that they wanted someone that, uh, what's a good way of saying this, you know, the uh, real American uh, type, a J.J. White. Uh, in the booth. Uh, I, I think, you know, as we talked about on the show before, ESPN does that balancing act of trying to stay hip, trying to stay current, but also not upsetting the uh, other side uh, of that as well. And I think, you know, Jason Witten is apple pie. Uh, no controversy there. It's, uh, uh, it's just a, just seems like a really just nice guy that you would take to see your mom. And I, I think they want that demographic uh, back in the booth. But like you said, I, I don't know if any of this changes how audiences feel about Monday night football. I don't know if anybody is saying, hey, I'm going to watch Monday night football because Jason Witten and Booger McFarlane are now in it. Uh, I think it still depends on the, the quality of the games and, and 
what they could do. I don't know if there's anything that they could do to kind of change up that, you know, it's ESPN, it's big corporate, uh, that just doesn't have the same type of flair some of these other shows have. Robert, I'll stay with you. Um, as a sort of a general philosophy, do you like the idea of having an analyst on the field, somebody, um, somebody who's going to offer traditional color commentary but does it from the perspective of the field as opposed to the booth? Not necessarily. I think the more people that you put in there, the worse that it gets. Uh, I was never a big fan of Tony Saragusa. Now, maybe they're going to do it, like, differently with Booger. I do like uh, Booger McFarlane a lot, but I just think the more people that are talking and, and trying to interact, and you already have Lisa Salters down there. I, like, my thing is just have one. If you just want to have a guy down on the sideline, do I, I, you know, just make it Booger McFarlane. I mean, he can go around and, and get the information because a lot of the times, uh, by the time someone – and this has nothing to do with Lisa Salter, but by the time Lisa Salter – gives us the information on TV. Everybody already knows, you know, what it is because there's a thousand people um, now online, you know, giving out the information. So I, I don't necessarily think more is better. I mean, I know that they're trying something, but it's not like groundbreaking. Like I said, they had Sarah Gusa, uh before. I just think they're trying to find a formula uh, that matches up, you know, with some of these other networks and broadcasts that have worked and they, they just haven't found it yet. So we have to see, how it all, you know, kind of works out. But I, I can't say that I'm very optimistic about it. One, uh, before I get to Chad, to one thing, uh, the one thing I would say, Robert, that I guess me and you probably disagree on is I think a good sideline reporter can get stuff that um, that's really valuable for a broadcast when it comes to injuries or just in terms of the reporting that's done during the week that you can even pass on to the booth, that the guys in the booth can get out. And, you know, if you have somebody good like Salter or Tafoya, Holly Rowe, Darsburg, people like that. I do think it adds, um, can definitely add to a broadcast. Chad, um, Robert mentioned Booger McFarlane. Uh, that's a, this is a guy who's really had a major star rise in the last four years, was a Tampa Bay sports talk host, got the job at the SEC Network, uh, got a lot of run on ESPN in their college football coverage, and now I think it's four years. Four years after he, after he was hired by ESPN, has now a prominent role on Monday Night Football. That is a guy who has had a meteoric rise at, at ESPN, um, was a former NFLer, you know, but we're not talking about Brett Favre, Aaron Rodgers, household name NFLer. So this is a, to me, that's a really impressive uh, ascendancy at a major network like ESPN. Yeah, it's funny too, Richard, because it hasn't really jumped out of you that he's a guy uh, on the ascent. You've seen it with, well, obviously, Lewis Riddick, who I think you and I both, and, and maybe Robert, too, thought should be a really welcome addition to Monday Night Football. Ryan Clark is uh, almost on that level himself. Uh, guys who have really built a, a good reputation as opinionated analysts, but their analyst analysis is built on not hot takes, but knowledge and, and uh, awareness of what's going on in the league and insight on the players. I, I would like to see one of those guys on here. Maybe McFarlane is one of those guys. We get a little bit of a look at him during the draft. Uh, seen him on the SEC Network. He's certainly charismatic on television. Uh, but I don't know if you would, uh, if you were ranking all the football commentators, uh, studio commentators on ESPN uh, over college and pro football, whether he would have been somebody I think that jumped to our minds right away. So obviously somebody thinks really highly of him at ESPN. Probably a couple of somebody, but. That's a challenging role he's going into. We saw it a little bit here in New England with uh, on the Patriots preseason broadcast a few years ago. Scott Zolak, the former backup quarterback, uh, did that 
sideline job where it wasn't just telling you that this guy suffered a sprained ankle and he's not coming back, but it was adding commentary to the game as it went along, and it worked pretty well with him. He ended up getting the Patriots radio job. Uh, but you have to have the right personality in there, and I, I, I don't know enough about McFarland uh, to know if he's the, 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 the perfect guy for this relatively – uh, relatively different role than what we're used to on these uh, on these primetime football broadcasts. So to me, it's a little bit of a question mark about him just because he's, he's relatively new to this. I think the question mark is fair. I like him. I think he's actually been a pretty interesting and refreshing voice when I've seen him on the SEC Network. I know he's well-liked by other talent he's worked with, like um, Kevin Gandhi and Paul Feinbaum. They both mentioned to me prior to the Monday Night Football hire that um, – that, that, that they thought he was somebody who was on the ascent. So I, the, to me, that could be an interesting one. And um, from the reporting that I did on Witten, uh, it was my story that broke the McFarland hire, and I, I did get some more details. Apparently, Witten had an excellent audition, not necessarily the best audition, but I think they saw him as the guy who had the highest ceiling, maybe with sort uh, of, as Robert pointed out, with the, with the, big, with the biggest name recognition. So they, they take the chance on him this year. Maybe he's not going to probably have the Romo-like impact, but you're looking at a guy maybe a year or two years from now who could be really, really good, and you sort of deal with his growing pain. So um, like all you guys, I'm going to be interested to see how it all plays. And obviously I think, Chad, you agree with Robert, as I do. Ultimately it's about the games, and the games will determine whether Monday Night Football has a good year or not. Um, Robert, you're putting on Twitter that there's going to be some elephants – uh, discussed in the room. You're direct messaging me, telling me that you've got some fire to bring. So I'm, I'm, the floor is yours. Where do you want to go now? Well, well see, now uh, let me preface this by saying, because I don't want it to get misconstrued. Uh, I have nothing, to, and, and it, this comes from a tweet that you had wrote about Katie Nolan uh, getting her own uh, show right. uh, on, on ESPN. ESPN Plus, by the way. Yeah, not, not linear ESPN. TV, but the Plus, right. ESPN Plus, and then, you know, we, see, we saw the, uh, uh, the story today about her salary and some of the things that she was yeah. doing. No, just just, and, just so we sort of add, New York Post, yeah. in a story today, reported her salary uh, around a million or so. Um, I'll go look and see if it was above a million. But th- the fact is that I'm sure that fact mm-hmm. is correct from what I've heard as well. And the piece written by Andrew Marshan sort of uh, assessed whether or not she was mm-hmm. worth a million bucks. Um mm-hmm. I would, I, you know, we'll get to you, Robert. I would say all anybody in the media should go for as much money as they can. That includes the people I really find uh, uh, just horrific, including Skip Bayless. And whether someone is worth it or not, I guess that's all subjective. But there are a lot of people in this business who are making a lot of money. So go ahead, Robert. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you worth whatever they give you. Right. I always say that Perfect. All the time. Trust me. I, I, you know, I make a, a decent amount of money, and, you know, I, I make a living coming up with words like Thotsaraj and talking about <laughs> Tristan Thompson and Khloe Kardashian. So I am not one to judge, uh, and I get paid a lot off of that, and it's very stupid. So I, I'm not one to judge off that. I think that what I wanted to talk to, you know, people about was I find Katie Nolan's situation interesting only because she seems to fail up into these uh, situations. Um, one of the one of the first interviews I ever saw from her was how she talked about how she bombed her uh, Fox Sports uh, uh, audition uh, for the uh, the show when they were first coming out with FS1 with Regis Spielman and everything, and they just said, "How are we going to give you a job anyway?" You know, so they they put her on that, and you know that show doesn't work out. I'm not saying that's any fault of her own. Um, she goes through garbage time, 
and does that and gets some critical acclaim. But, you know, the ratings aren't that great. She kind of is on the shelf for a while. You know, she pops up at ESPN um, after some negotiations. Uh, they, they do the Sports Center Snapchat. She does appearances from time to time. And, you know, she's making seven figures. And, and the issue that I have with that has really nothing to do with Katie Nolan. It has more to do with the industry in that women of color uh, we are not really afforded those type of opportunities to fail and then get better stuff as they go, you know, along in their career. Uh, I don't think women of color would be allowed to, you know, drink on a set with Rob Gronkowski or to have the type of colorful language uh, that, that Nolan uses from time to time as a way of, you know, that's her personality and stuff. They kind of held to a higher standard. And I just found that, it, you know, it was interesting seeing that now she's, you know, another show uh, that is being set up and developed by her when there's so many, I think, the representation of, of women of color uh, in media is, is not where it should be. And, and, there are, and I'm not saying that she's not talented, but I'm saying there's a lot of talented young ladies in, 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 in media, like a Taylor Rooks or, you know, Roz Gold over at, at TNT or the Turner Networks. Uh, that I just don't think would be able to have the type of setbacks that she's had and still be able to pile that into a, a million-dollar contract. And I think we talked about this before. You know, I don't think uh, Aaron Rodgers does anything particularly better or worse than Pam Oliver, but it was, you know, Pam Oliver that was, you know, demoted. So it's just it's one of those things that, that frustrates me as an as a African-American, as a black person, um, someone that kind of had to make his own lane in media, I just wish there were more opportunities uh, for young minority women uh, in the industry, in an industry that's tough for women overall, uh, like there have been for, for Katie Nolan. And you see all of the layoffs at ESPN and the other things that are going on. Uh, I just wish that, that there would be more opportunities uh, to fail up, so to speak, uh, for, for women of color. So I, I just wanted to get that out there. It was just, like I said, it's something that's bothered me for a, a long time, and I've spoken to a lot of, of the, the women in media. I don't want to say any names because I don't want to throw them out there, but, uh, you know, put them under the bus like that. But let's just say that they are aware of what's, you know, happening. And, you know, it, it, to me it's just it's not, it's not a good look for our, our industry a, as a whole. So that, that's, what, that's what I had to get off of my, my, my chest. Okay, I, I appreciate that. Um, look, and, uh, Chad, we'll go to you. I, I Sort of my, um, my thoughts, it's, I absolutely 100% agree with you on the lack of opportunities that women of color get when it comes to being front-facing talents or being personalities. Jamel, obviously, Jamel Hill got one, and we saw how quickly um, – Management, in my opinion, flipped oh. on her. Um, Carrie Champion now at ESPN has that oh. um, at Sports Nation, but you know she's very honest and she's been on this podcast about how long it took for oh. her to get her opportunities, oh. and she had to actually go outside of ESPN in a deal that John Skipper greenlit for her to do the series that got a lot of attention when she drove around with LeBron James. And Kevin Durant. That wasn't an ESPN production. Mm-hmm. That was a production via LeBron. Here's the one. So, Robert, I'm agree with you on that. And maybe, you know, as a white guy who's clearly been afforded opportunities that people of color probably have not gotten, I, I realize it's a little sometimes silly for me to even talk about that. The one thing I would say about Nolan Robert is that I think in the in context, I think you got to look at the context in terms of garbage time. Really didn't have a shot to succeed given the network it was on 
and given where it's slotted. Now, it didn't do well at all, and Katie Nolan has to own that, but I'm not sure I would judge her long-term possibilities based on an FS1 property, you know, close to midnight. She had success online. She certainly has a lot of, I think, people who find her work interesting. So in that sense, I think ESPN made a smart hire. If you want to argue whether the salary is too much or not, I don't even know where to go with that. Like, is Barry Melrose paid too much? Is uh, Mike Greenberg paid too much? Is Bayless paid too much? But your point, in my opinion, on women of color is spot on. Um, And the only way I feel like that's going to change is if we see – hopefully more women of color in management so they can change that. Anyway, Chad, again, as, as a white sports media person who has certainly been afforded opportunities like I have, um, you are someone who profiled Katie Nolan. What's your, yeah. what's your thought on, um, on sort of how Rob looks at this situation? Well, she's had a pretty unique career path for sure um, because she's had a few, few really uh, – I guess extraordinary opportunities. I wouldn't say garbage time is one because they put her on Wednesday nights at midnight, and uh, it's pretty much impossible to find a find an audience there, no matter how talented or, or distinctive you are. But uh, it seems like she's had a couple of chances where she's been hired without the sense of what her actual role would be. It's, it's sort of a both with ESPN and Fox, they've looked at her and said, "Okay, she has something distinctive. She's talented. She has a sense of humor." She can kind of connect with guys on the sports level, but we have no idea what to do with her. I think ESPN is still just figuring that out. Uh, I don't know of many people who have had those sort of opportunities without being fully established, uh, white or black or uh, male or female, where they keep getting they get contracts, uh, but you, the, the definition of what their job is is still sort of up in the air. That's been sort of a strange. Um, of a strange uh, route for her to take for sure but i think to judge your salary i want to see the salaries of everybody else there i i a million bucks to me um tell me how that compares to the the six and a half i believe it is that beetle makes or uh, i don't know what uh sage steel was making in her, her nba countdown days or yeah, so she's uh, she's making thing- she's making or she made seven figures at one point and but i yeah, mean again I, you know I, I would say the same thing i mean like there are sports center anchors who have been historically longtime sports center anchors are making seven figures there. Go, go to any right. ex NFLer who uh, or big time NBA or who gets hired by ESPN and their agents smartly. And Rob, you know this. They're they're trying to get mm-hmm. former former athlete dough. And even though they're not going to get the same kind of contracts they got in the NBA or the NFL, their their starting price is always higher than any uh, traditional television sports talent. Because because right. because the networks will always pay them more money. Like for instance, I think Witten's getting paid supposedly between four or five million bucks. So that's that's going to put him at a pretty high level at ESPN to start. Rob, the one thing uh, I did want to ask you because I, because I, you bring up I think what's a fascinating point is that um, how much do you think this comes down to management, which is usually white males in their forties or fifties who are hiring what they perceive the quote-unquote, their quote-unquote sports audience watch, which generally speaking is often 20 or 30-something women who are white mm-hmm. in that prominent position or are uh, are men in like uh, tr- the old traditional sort of sports center type of, um, you know, aesthetic, uh, you know, Steve Levy, Carl Ravage, Chris Fowler types. I just wonder if 
can the can the industry ever change unless those in management ultimately are more reflective of the diversity of the country? Well, one that's why I think what happened with you know Sports Center the Six is a is an issue is that they tried to take a step uh, in that direction, and what happened was as soon as they got pushback. Uh, they did, they just cut the cord, right. uh, and it, it was it was strong pushback, but it was cut the cord. Whereas, say something like Katie Nolan, the cord is much longer because they're just trying. They want to figure it out for her, as opposed to when it's even if someone like Jamel Hill, who's very popular, uh, obviously has done very well for herself, uh, but that cord was still shorter in that regard when it came to trying something you know new and different. So I think you're exactly right. And like I said, it's, to me, it's not about the salary. I, I had this, these thoughts before I knew how, a dime that she was making because I came to you uh, with this beforehand. So it doesn't right. matter to me if she's making 100000 or $2 million. That's great. I wish somebody gave me $2 million. I, I'd do some stuff for $2 million or $1 million or whatever it is. Uh, the, the issue to me is that, that rope, like you just talked about, is how long that rope is uh, for people that, you know, like you said, just look like them. And, you know, I think that's something that we kind of all get into, that we're more comfortable. And, you know, I'm not trying to stereotype her. I think she fits the stereotype of what management thinks the, the male sports fan, you know, would like out of a, a woman that's talking about, you know, sports. She drinks beer. She curses. She's one of the boys type of, type of deal. Right. Uh, and if, what, what we notice is, is that sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes uh, black women or women of color uh, in sports get sexualized uh, by what they wear, what their hair looks like or something. It's, it's just a different dynamic. And I don't, I don't have an answer. I wish I did. I wish I had an answer how to, how to fix it all. It's just, I wish sometimes that management would look back at this and say, Hey, why don't, you know, no, I don't mean like, Hey, let's fire Katie Nolan. Let Katie Nolan do whatever she does, but Hey, why don't we try uh, an interesting show uh, with one of the young ladies from the undefeated? You know what I'm saying? Let's, Give her something. Let's give her a little more on-air time. Just stuff like that, I think, would show that, you know, that they're trying and they're just not falling back into such age-old stereotypes about men, about media, and about sports. Yeah, uh, Robert, uh, the one thing I think you – I mean, again, I, I feel a little uncomfortable. I don't want to sort of pit Katie Nolan versus cool. other women there. I, I understand your larger yeah. point. <laughs> but the one thing that I think you totally hit on, and again, I'm sure there are going to be people calling out there, oh, this guy's an SJW – uh, you know, he's far to the far left. But the fact is, like, there's no arguing that the Hill Smith Sports Center did not get, in my opinion, the kind of time to bake that I think another show would have. And I do think it speaks, Robert, to some of the stuff that you're talking about, is that there's a comfortability with, like, what they're trying to go back to in this sort of the traditional sports center. They, they, um, Jamel and Michael did not look like your normal traditional sports center anchors. That, by the way, this is whether you think the show sucked or not. I just think that the, they probably w- and I and listen. I, I'm not one who thinks the show was great at all. I, I I have great respect for both of them, but they didn't. That sport. This wasn't the greatest sports center of all time. But I do think, as Robert, you were saying, is that once there was some pushback from those who made claims, and a lot of times, by the way. Um, incorrect claims that they were somehow politicizing every one of their SD6 shows, ESPN cut bait pretty quick. 
And I do want and I and I do then think that speaks to what you're talking about is that others would get a longer shelf life. For example, and maybe it's not the greatest example, but you know, Undisputed's numbers have been lousy, um, given the amount of salary that uh Skip Bayless um has. But that show's not being cut and run by Fox at the moment. They're they're sticking with it. Is it because like I don't know. But why is that? Skip represents you know, something that he, he looks like the Fox management guys look like. I don't know what it is, but I think you're I, I think you have an interesting point there and I think you're on to something. I, I guess my last thing I would say is that I did think John Skipper, who is back in the news, did try to make an honest attempt at changing a lot of how the front-facing ESPN looks in terms of adding people of color. It wasn't as good nearly behind the scenes, but I do think the guy did make an honest attempt, and you also saw from that honest attempt, Robert, a shitload of pushback. Right, and uh, that's all I'm saying. Like I said, I don't want this to be like, oh, I'm I'm bagging on on Katie Nolan. It's just she's the example uh, that I'm using. I wish her nothing but the best, and I wish her shows to success, and I, I have nothing against her or how much money she makes. I wish everybody can make as much money as possible. And I've talked to you about how I don't have an issue with how much Skip Bayless makes. If somebody wants to pay you, uh, that's it. I, I, <laughs> my issue is more I would like like society, uh, I think our industry, you know, needs to change. These are societal problems. This is not just a sports media problem. This is something that happens in industries, all in, in any type of industry. So I think by you giving me the opportunity to come on these shows, I think it's important uh, that – when given the opportunity that somebody kind of speaks up about it, that doesn't have to worry about management coming down on them and saying, well, why are you talking about our talent or this is better or whatever? So that, that's just why I want to talk about it. Definitely want to make sure people know that I'm not trying to bag on her. No, I, pre- I appreciate it. By the way, I, I, I get, Bale should make as much as he can, as much as the CA agents can. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to enjoy pointing his salary out there uh, just because <laughs> I'm being a wise ass, but he should. I mean, listen, the guy – all of us should be you, – you are, as Robert said, what they are willing to pay you, whether you're at The Athletic, The Boston Globe, or BSO. Chad, did you – I didn't mean to sort of uh, filibuster there. Did, was there. did you want to add to what Robert and I were talking about? Well, I just thought it was interesting that you brought up uh, SC6 with, with Michael and Jamel. I, I am curious now whether a show that falters a little bit in the beginning and, and doesn't trend right right away, uh, meaning probably get up, from what we've seen so far, whether that gets a longer lease than, than uh, you know, SC6 did. It's a little bit of an apples to oranges comparison there, but uh, both the same company, different times of day. But um, you're absolutely right that uh, once they got, uh, once uh, Michael and Jamel got this huge promotion uh, early on after ESPN made that switch, uh, they sort of backed off pretty quickly, and they did make a, a quick change there. I'm curious if other shows that maybe have a little bit of a uh, a different cast and a different feel to its cast end up getting uh, a lesser, uh, getting a chance to stick around a little bit longer. Well, get up's going to be the test case, but I think, again, Ooh. there's so much salary there that I think they're going to have to, yeah. they're going to give it a run. Um, and again, it is apples to oranges, but get up right now would kill for SC6 ratings. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of the actual viewership, it's not close on that. Um, Robert, um, I want to I wanted to segue to um, something that's always interesting to me. Charles Barkley, I don't know if it was last week or or I think it was last week. He he basically said yeah. something to the effect of uh, somebody should punch J- Draymond Green on the court. Am I do I have that right? I think I have that right. Um, yeah. And that caused he, said he would do it. Oh, he would. I take that back. Right. Barkley said he uh-huh. would do it. 
Uh, Draymond correctly called him out for that. Um, Draymond actually, I think he went to the point where he said Turner should be embarrassed by those kind of comments. Barkley did walk it back. Uh, you know, I love Barkley. People know that. Um, I've interviewed him many times. I-, I think he's great both on the air and off the air with people. And I don't think there's any doubt that I probably am I'm a person in the media who gives him passes and gives him the benefit, uh, benefit of the doubt when he says something like this, where I bet you I wouldn't be as easy to sort of shake it off, that's just Charles, if it's somebody else. Um, why do you think that is? I'm just always fascinated that Barkley, um, a lot of stuff doesn't stick to Barkley. I don't know if it's because he's one of the great players in the NBA, because he's accessible, because he's been on the air for so long, but you know, some other commentator said that, it, it would have been much bigger deal. I always think outrage a lot of times is dependent on if people like the person or not. <laughs> uh, outrage is also kind of dependent on how the tone of a show has been, you know, for the past 20 years. And that's kind of what you expect on, on uh, you know, inside the NBA. And Barkley, uh, like other athletes, is, for whatever reason, he's always been controversial. And people kind of say, oh, you know, that's just Charles being Charles, just like, like you said. Uh, and he may have went a little bit too far, but when you give someone, once again, you give someone all that rope, uh, eventually they may say something, you know, to hang themselves. And, and I think it, it, with, with TNT and inside the NBA, uh, the things that they say, they, you couldn't, they wouldn't say that. They couldn't get away with some of that stuff on, on ESPN. Um, and, and that's just the way that the show is. And, and I didn't have a problem with it just because that's the way it is. Now, Draymond is right. Charles Barkley's not going to punch anybody in, in the face. Uh, but I think sometimes you got to call people out for being studio gangsters, as we used to say back in my day, uh, and everything. But I, I think it's just certain individuals, uh, when they say things, people just kind of brush them aside because, you know, maybe they're silly or maybe they're always joking. Um, and they don't take them a- as seriously as they would someone else uh, saying. I mean, Charles Barkley is definitely one of those guys that could say things. And if you really, like, break down what he's saying, it's, it's either awful or it's just a really bad take or it's offensive. But because he's Charles Barkley, uh, people just, you know, let it go. And I don't know if that's a, a good or bad thing. I mean, I mean we all, we're supposed to treat everybody the same. Uh, but we all know, you know, Jimmy Johnson taught me a long time ago that, you know, the rules are different for Michael Irvin than the, than the third string running back. <laughs> that's right. The, the, the rules seem to be different for, for Charles Barkley. Yep, the rules are different at ESPN for Stephen A. Smith and John Gruden than they are for, uh, uh-huh. you know, Kevin Connors and uh, Josh Krulowitz. So, um, uh-huh. Chad, uh, the one thing that's, like, interesting to me, Robert, you can sort of weigh in on this, but w- you know how, like, where, like, a lot of ESPN shows have gotten tagged as um, – uh, social justice warriors, they talk politics too much. That's never happened with Inside the NBA. That, that show never gets that, te- you know, I don't hear Breitbart going after that show. Do you think it's because there's there's a thought that, that the NBA players and NBA broadcasters and NBA media um, discuss this stuff, that's part of the culture, that's part of the conversation, or is it something else? Because that's a show that... that Interestingly enough, it's far more political than nearly every show on ESPN. But you, I don't see a lot of right media attacking them, and I wonder, I wonder why that is. Uh, maybe they're just not aware of it yet. I don't know. It's been around for how many years now? At least over a decade. Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's... Basically, the, the same cast with Shaq being added in the last uh, what, five or six years after he retired. 
Um, I think it's just what's expected of them at this point. They got a head start on it and developed what the show is going to be. And, you know, as we know, it's what everybody else has tried to imitate. Some, some other shows have, uh, have found a way to get it. I think uh, actually Good Morning Football sort of has the same sort of thing going right now. Although no, no, that, they, that, although that, that show specifically does not go anywhere near controversial or political topics, right? They've made that – Good Morning Football sort of right. made that a selling point, I, I feel like. They have, yeah. Just I'm talking about the sort of the charisma of the personalities involved. Right, right, right. You you want to be a part of it. Uh, it also ties back to Barkley. I mean, it was always amusing to me this whole Draymond thing because Draymond basically is Barkley. I could see him <laughs> uh, with his out, outspokenness. And, yeah, and uh, he'd be great. You know, his, I agree. Uh, he'd be a great. He'd be yeah. a great broadcaster when he retires. I'm I'm with you. Yeah, he's he's going to be Barkley. He'll probably replace him on that show, but. Uh, uh, Barkley, we've known him since 1984. We knew the stuff that he did as a Sixers player, you know, chucking somebody through a plate glass window in a bar. Uh, he's always gotten away with things because he's a charismatic personality who you recognize in genuine, as genuine or it comes across that way. And I think anybody who's interacted with him feels that way as well. And uh, he's got the history of being this guy with, with that sort of personality. So I think it's transferred to TV where – he can sort of get away with saying things because he got away with a lot of things during his playing days. Robert, just on that point, I, I always feel like it's like um, there's an expectation from some that like ES, my ESPN should be politics-free, right? My ESPN should be the way ESPN was back in the day where, where the expectation, I guess, for inside the NBA is, one, they're going to be talking about what they want, and actually kind of quite frankly, too, they don't give an F if you have a problem with what they're talking about, which is – which is sort of a POV that I respect. Right. See, I think that's, I think that's the main issue. I mean, if you stand up to a bully, the bully normally, you know, backs down. If you react to the bully, then the bully knows that he can keep, you know, bothering you. And I think ESPN has always reacted. They're reacting to any type of, you know, pushback, or they're always worried about, you know, ratings and advertisers, uh, where the NBA in general and, and inside the NBA, just like we're going to just do our thing. And, you know, whatever. And, people, you know, they're, they're, you, you, it's like a troll. It's like dealing with a, a troll on social media. If you don't give the troll any attention, they go away and go troll somewhere else. So I think ESPN is easy to troll because like, easy to get to react. I think that's the same reason why the NBA doesn't have as much issues when they talk about social issues than the NFL. Because the NFL is always reacting and saying stupid stuff and, you know, blackballing players. They do, they react so much, people know, hey, we can influence them. Whereas the NBA is like, hey, we're going to let them talk. They can say what they want to do. They can, they can you know, they can, if they want to protest, we, we don't really have a problem with it. And they don't get much pushback and their ratings, you know, are up. So I, I just think it's more that, you know, ESPN wants to play things so safe and wants to appease everyone um, that, you know, people know that they can kind of go at them and, and they will react uh, accordingly. Whereas people know that, you know, it's Charles Barkley. It's inside the NBA. They're going to say something crazy every day. So you get used to it. And now that's why I think there's no pushback. Last one uh, in terms of topics. Uh, Chad, John Skipper today, or what was it? Yeah, I think it was this morning. Um mm-hmm. Was announced here. Let me actually. I'm going to pull this up because I make sure that I have the um, the company right. Uh, so John Skipper, um, who is of course the former president of ESPN, who resigned from ESPN after 20 years, citing a uh, substance addiction, which eventually he revealed as a cocaine problem, and he he in his words was being extorted 
by somebody who he purchased drugs from, though he has never been specific about who the person or persons were extorting him. Uh, hired as the executive chairman of the sports media company Perform Group. Uh, Perform owns, among other things, um, the Sporting News in the States. They own, um, let's see here, uh, I think it's called D-A-Y. I'm trying, yeah, they... Push forward. I think their 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 streaming service, I believe, is called DAZN, and they stream a lot. They're British based, so they stream sports um, such as uh, uh, tennis, football, basketball, soccer. They they stream these around the world, basically. I think DAZN was in the news not too long ago uh, because Canadians were very ticked off about um, DAZN was not giving them what they wanted when it came to. NFL games. There were some issues with that service. So uh, I apologize for my pretty lousy explanation there. But but basically, John Skipper has a new job six months after leaving ESPN. He's got a big job with this new Perform Group. Chad, I got to be honest with you. I think I'm a little surprised here at how quickly John Skipper is back in the sports media world. Now, this is, you know, to be very honest, this job is light years away from ESPN, which you know, you can president of ESPN, which could be in theory the, the most powerful person in sports. Still, though, um, it's a it's a big job that that a guy's gotten after resigning from ESPN for um, you know substance abuse addiction. Were you surprised to read this today? I was very surprised. I mean, it's still it's tough to gauge exactly uh, the 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 depth and. and uh, sort of the profile this company's going to work for, but it sounds like uh, it's got some, some relative prominence, even if not a, a big name yet. But I'd certainly hope the whole extortion story came up pretty early in the in the job interview because that is a really bizarre situation uh, and also one that should cause pretty significant skepticism or questions about uh, what he's going to be going forward, the cocaine thing, which uh, apparently uh, very few people, if any, at ESPN were aware of. Um, sort of the, that just crazy backstory about it that he told. Uh, I, I felt like he would be uh, dif- difficult to hire for a while, at least, that he would be gone for probably a year from any prominence and that uh, he would probably take a little bit more time from that off to uh, sort things out because it sounded like he had really significant things to sort out. So I don't know. Maybe he wanted to get back at it. Maybe there's something about this company that really appealed to him, but I am totally surprised that he's uh, he's back in the game as soon as he is. Yeah, and I'll just sort of mention here before I get to you, Robert, they also own goal in the United States. They have uh, investments in sports data, um, including Opta, which is a big uh, statistical analysis leader. If you're ever on Twitter, they have a great site. Um, and then they partner with leagues, like I said, in the NFL to, source, to sell sports rights uh, through DAZN. Thank you, New York Times, for hooking me up with that explanation there. Uh, Robert, what about um, – I, I like, yeah, I'm with Chad. I'm, I'm not necessarily. I mean, I feel like all these guys eventually get back because you know when you're in Skipper's circle, this is the honestly the advantage I think of being a rich white dude in America is that you somebody's eventually going to take a shot on you even after this. But I'm surprised it came this quick. To be blunt, it makes me think that you know he didn't really want to leave uh, ESPN. Like that that story, it kind of came out of nowhere. You know, it's kind of blindsided and, you know, he was there one day and he was talking to everybody and then the future seemed bright. And then the next day he was gone. Um, so, I mean, if you're 
I think there's a big difference between, you know, you leaving voluntarily or you burnt out or whatever, you know, your, your personal situations are and having a personal situation and kind of being nudged out with the, like with the elbow. And, and when you come back this fast, that lets me, let, let, leads me to believe that he didn't really want to go. So he's itching to get back uh, in. Um, and maybe he didn't feel like his, cause I, I wasn't one part of the story is that it wasn't so much that he, he, he left. It was that he, he was a fear of him being blackmailed yes. uh, about some of the, the issues he was having. Right. So, I mean, to me, that's not, that's not sitting at home saying, you know, I, I got an issue. I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to resign. That's I'm being forced into it. And now that some time has passed, uh, he probably won't be me. He's probably sat around for a while. Like I want to get back in, in the game. So I, I'm not, I'm not surprised by it. And like I said, like you said, you know, it's, those opportunities kind of always fall back uh, into place for you. So uh, I've always liked John Skipper. I think he's done a lot for, I think, ESPN it comes in terms of minority hiring, um, is, if not the biggest, one of the biggest uh, in media. So I've never had a problem with him. But, yeah, if I was being blackmailed and that forced me to, you know, lose my dream job, yeah, I would kind of want to get back into it if an opportunity came to him. And it looks like this one kind of fell in his lap. Yeah, last one for me, Chad, is that um, I, I – and we'll, we'll probably do some long podcast on John Skipper. I'm probably the guy to obviously have on would be Jim, Jim Miller, who knows Skipper and is tight with Skipper and would have uh, you know, the best insight there. But I find myself – and, Robert, you certainly can weigh in too. I just find myself sort of feeling mixed. On the one hand, everything Robert said is true. John Skipper absolutely um, is the most important person, at least in my lifetime, of changing the perception of – of front-facing talent in terms of adding women and adding people of color in front of us um, and giving those kind of opportunities. Gave opportunities to women in, in, in roles that specifically went to men, like Jessica Mendoza, for instance, um, Doris Burke. You know, these are things that changed the game publicly massively, and there's no turning back. He cared about journalism and uh, invested a lot of money in writers and reporters and and uh, outside the line. So there's a lot of things to check off. At the same time, Chad, I just found myself going, the guy also was incredibly reckless, and he, he says he compartmentalized all, that stu- all this stuff between that, his, that life and his work life, but that's total bullshit. You can't compartmentalize that. And a lot of people were laid off under him, and he ca- he, he, his resignation quite frankly, changed the lives of a lot of people and not for the better because of his recklessness in that position. So I find myself like kind of mixed feelings for the guy. Or, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think he did, as Robert said, a lot of things that were really important. On the other hand, I'm not even trying to be a moralist here, but, you know, there's a big responsibility when you have that job. And, and his behavior really hurt a lot of people financially. And so that's where I can't, you know, I, I don't know where to go with those feelings. I'm not I'm not being so eloquent with that, but I have mixed feelings when it comes to him. Well, I don't think there are too many people uh, in media or I guess in life in general who would get an opportunity like this after what happened and how the previous job ended so quickly uh, as Skipper has. It's, uh, there's still unanswered questions out there. I mean, who's this, who is extorting him? Yep. Uh, uh, why did he feel the need to resign? Why did he just sign a new contract right before that? Uh, feels like there are voids to be filled in, filled in, and he's only filled in the voids that he wants to. So, uh, I, I congratulations to him for getting a chance, but 
Uh, I thought people would be more reluctant to hire him uh, based on how it ended at ESPN. Yes, he was really good at his job. He did a lot of great things there. Uh, he hired a lot of people that I didn't know about that I, I grew to like when they became ESPN employees. He, he had a real knack for recognizing talent. But uh, I, I'm surprised that uh, even with his talent, he get this uh, a decent opportunity so soon after it ended so strangely there. All right. Is there anything else you guys want to hit on? Um that I did not bring up today. You'll obviously both be back. Is there anything else uh, on your minds before we pull this segment uh, out or and end this segment? I wonder why is WWE still pushing Roman Reigns? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Chad. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, poor Roman, by the way, the uh, the crowd walked out on that last. Uh, yeah, I feel bad. I like Roman a lot. I feel like the WWE, Robert. You, I know we agree, you, we at least agree on this part. They're not doing him any favors with storyline. No, no, it's not Roman. But I just like to make that that joke every time we come. I know, on. I know. It kill. I like Roman too. He's he's actually a good guy. And but uh, my God, they're yeah, yeah. they're killing. They're killing. I mean, I think at this point I'd go heel turn because I don't know where else you can go with them because you're killing them with with everything else. Uh, and you know what? A little over. I, I I like the WWE and and I admire their storytelling abilities, but a little oversaturation, Robert. The last couple of days, you know, we don't need sixty five shows, um, which is why you get a terrible Raw on Monday uh, because of that. Yeah. Chad, uh, I know you don't want to talk wrestling. What did you want to say? <laughs> oh, I, I had one more Monday Night Football question. For sure. You. Why do you think uh, Riddick didn't end up uh, getting one of his jobs? Because of- Clearly wanted it, as he told you, and I think he would be absolutely fantastic at it. Was it because he was uh, too good in the studio, too valuable to them there, or yeah, uh, was call, it uh, call, seeing call, something else in other people? Call this a reported analysis answer. Uh, I believe that once he wasn't going to get the Witten job, I think he and his reps decided that there was probably more value for him to be had um, doing all the other stuff that he does for ESPN, and I think ESPN management felt that as well. Um, but I'm yeah. listen, I, I've said this, Chad, you, you maybe agree with me, maybe you don't. I think Lewis Riddick's the best NFL hire by ESPN in the last decade by far. I agree. And so Absolutely. if you think Monday Night Football is your most important package, you know, I, I don't know why he wouldn't have been an excellent person in the booth, independent of whether uh, Jason Witten does well or not. That said, Riddick essentially has become their – I think most important studio analyst when it comes to the NFL, he's going to be in a lot of important places. And um, if you're ESPN, I think the one, the only really thing you have to worry about is if he's going to take an NFL job. That that would be the place where I'd worry because I think I think he likes ESPN and I think he's going to stay at ESPN as long as he's in broadcasting. But he does seem to be a guy who wants to get back in the way Gruden wants to get back in. So uh, it's something to watch. Uh, something to watch there. All right, Chad Finn is the sports media writer and general columnist, sports columnist with Boston Globe. Robert Littell is the founder and editor of Black Sports Online. Follow these guys on Twitter. You'll both be back. Robert, you've uh, enlivened this podcast, so you'll definitely be back. Chad <laughs> Chad does every podcast, Robert, so I know he'll be back anyway. It's, and it's, I, yeah, don't worry. I'll find something else to vent about. <laughs> yeah, I need Robert. I need um, One of these days, Robert, we're just, we'll, we'll just have a wrestling podcast. It, it, might, it honestly might get, awesome. 40, it might get 40 downloads, but I don't care. We'll just talk about it. <laughs> All right, Chad and Robert, thank you very much. I'll be talking to you both soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. My thanks to uh, Chad and Robert for a great conversation. Now we head to the second round table on this podcast, and that is Lindsay Adler and AJ Perez.
All right, and we bring in Lindsey Adler, who I said is a baseball writer for The Athletic, covering the Mets and the Yankees. A.J. Perez, who has been on this podcast before, is a sports reporter for USA Today. He covers a multitude of sports, including the sports media. Lindsey and A.J., welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. It's very uh, Gary (laughs) Delabate of you. Uh, Lindsey, um, your first time on this podcast, it was really hard to book Mm -hmm. you. I I basically just had to slack you. And you came on. So you're, this is interesting to me, and I think will be interesting to the listeners, too. You cover the Mets and Yankees um, mm-hmm. as sort of this hybrid reporter, which is not necessarily a common position in the sports media. So um, in your first year of doing this for The Athletic, how have you approached covering two different teams with two different managements, two different sets of players, two different, uh, you know, two different sets of reporters as well? What's what has been your strategy to try to figure out how you can uh, report in these two worlds? Well, I think it's it's been pretty challenging because I spend you know a chunk of time with one team and then I jump over to the other. But it's also beneficial in that I don't have to see the same faces every day. But I think it's it's really useful as a first year reporter to be able to kind of contrast the clubs against each other. Hmm. You know, you have two first new managers, two, you know, new starts for both of these teams. And I don't have the experience of everyone else in the room, so I don't really have the full context of it. So being able to see, you know, Mickey Calloway approaches his club this way, you know, this is how the Mets do things, X, Y, and Z, and then going over to the Bronx and being like, okay, this is, you know, how the Yankees approach things. This is what's this is what they have in common. This is what's different. It's kind of helped me, I think, you know, calibrate what's unique to each club and kind of what is just the culture of baseball. Hmm. Lindsay, um, oh, go ahead. You know, it's, 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 it's tough, but it's, you know, thinking about, you know, staying plugged in with each team, but it also kind of gives me opportunities for, you know, t- twice the opportunities to find interesting stories, I think. How would you... Um... What is the difference, at least from what you've seen, in the Yankees' media relations uh, staff in terms of their relationship with reporters, how sort of reporters work that beat, versus the Mets and the media relations uh, relationships with their reporters and how Mets reporters work that beat? Is are are is it similar? Is it different? And and if so, on either end, how? I think you know both both clubs have been really good with me and very accommodating. I think the Yankees have really, um, you know, they've, they've been really useful, especially when I was down in spring training, they sat me down with a couple coaches, things like that. I mean, from what I've experienced, it's been professional on both sides. I think the thing is a lot of the reporters on the Mets side of things uh, are, I guess I would say more focused on breaking news and then, it's just the Yankees are a little bit more buttoned up, so it's a lot more big-picture stuff over there. So, um, you know, personally, I've had good experiences with, with both. I just think the range of access is a little bit different. I think, I, by my understanding, and this is the sense I've gotten from talking with other reporters who have covered the Yankees for a long time, there's kind of a top-down organizational philosophy that, Win or lose, good day or bad day, you will you will be available to reporters. Um, so I think, actually, I 
going into it, I thought it would be a little bit easier to have kind of extensive conversations with, you know, people with the Mets, but I've actually found that to be a little bit easier with the Yankees. How welcoming have the other reporters on the beats been to you as a first-year reporter on both beats? They've all been really nice. Um, It was something I was really concerned about. I know both of those beats are really cutthroat because you have so much competition. You know, you walk into a room and there's 30 other people. Um, I think they've all kind of helped, helped me understand the landscape. And honestly, you know, right now I'm not much competition for them. I'm a first-year reporter, you know, two months into my first year on the baseball beat. Um, I'm not exactly going to be, you know, scooping them on player transition or uh, player transactions and things like that. But, you know, it's it's a grind and everyone's kind of in it together. And it's not as, it's not as, I guess, contentious as I might have expected from the outside. Obviously, it's, there's still a lot of competition, but, um, you know, nobody's really given me the cold shoulder so far. And so it's good to hear and interesting. Um, last one, and we'll move to AJ real quick. Um, of the two teams, um, who on the Yankees and who on the Mets would you say, in terms of players, are particularly media-friendly and why? Um, with the Mets, Jay Bruce and Todd Frazier always make themselves available. Todd is always down to talk about anything from serious to unserious. And Jay Bruce really gives kind of the the good, the measured veteran perspective quote. With the Yankees, um, you know, CC Sabathia is really kind of the go-to guy, but someone who I've found to be really valuable is their backup catcher, Austin Romine, Mm -hmm. because he's been with the team for quite a while. You know, he really... He's, he's seen a lot of stuff. Like he, he joked a couple weeks ago, he started out his career catching guys, you know, who are pitching into their 40s, and now he's catching a 24-year-old ace. Um, so he, he really has a lot of good perspective, and because he doesn't have the media attention of, say, an Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton, I think he's a little bit more more open than they are able to be. No, it doesn't. I feel like backup. I I covered the NFL a lifetime ago, and uh, I always love backup offensive linemen, and that's what like a backup catcher mm-hmm. feels to me. Is like uh, you just feel it'd be a pretty good source on a team for exactly the reasons um, you talked about. AJ, as I moved to you, have you ever did you have you ever covered a uh, baseball beat? I know uh, you uh, did. Na- I know no, you did NASCAR, um, but uh, baseball, yeah. no. No, uh, actually, probably most of my experience came last year covering the World Series on the Dodgers, uh, all the games in L.A. I don't think people know how long the days are. I mean, everybody will think, oh, sports (laughs) writer, dream job. The days are so long for baseball writers. It's it's insane. It's like, you know, hockey splits it up. You have a morning skate, then you cover the game. There's like four or five hours in between. You can take a nap, write, do whatever. But you're at the ballpark, minimum nine, ten hours pretty much. It, um, unless it goes extras, it's just a, it's it, it's I'll, I'll say it it's it it can be a grind especially for if you're covering on road um, on the road one team on the road home all year long it's it's a long season yeah no I mean as someone who grew up obviously wanting to write about sports it literally is the last place on earth I'd want to be that that just seems like <laughs> such a hard grind uh, 162 games including spring training like you said really really late nights um, I guess if you get lucky and get a good team it could be fascinating but. 
you know, imagine you're covering like a 70-win team or something like that, and it's like August 15th, and, um, you know, you're in Cincinnati or something like that for like <laughs> the end of a long road trip. It just, God bless you, Lindsay. I don't know how you do it. Um, That's really the thing. Like, both teams have been interesting to this point. I've, I've, I've quickly realized that the hardest part of the job is not getting the perfect quote or anything like that. It's figuring out what to say when a team is being just, plain old boring uh (laughs) yeah well you i I mean Lindsay, you're i mean to be honest with you this may be the 2018 has to be the most interesting year i feel like in new york baseball in uh, in a while just given the fast start that the mets got off to i know they're struggling a little bit now and obviously the yankees are just an incredibly fascinating team with stanton coming over so if ever there was a time to be a hybrid uh reporter for both these teams i feel like you you have hit the right year, if nothing else. Exactly. I feel like I'm getting double the rookie experience in one go. <laughs> um, all right, AJ, let us, uh, let us move. This will be the worst segue ever, but let us move to the <laughs> UFC. Um, today, in a vaunted press release by the lovely people in Bristol, Connecticut, um, ESPN has agreed to carry 10 to 15 UFC events exclusively on its direct-to-consumer ESPN Plus platform. I think John O'Ran of the Sports Business Daily was the one to break that. The ESPN has now officially confirmed that. Um, that deal, $150 million per year over five years, according to O'Ran. And it deal covers rights for the UFC's digital package. This is very, very interesting in that, um, AJ, as you know, and I, we've talked about this on this podcast, ESPN Plus is such a big bet for ESPN, both in the present as well as the future. And the key, really, to the bet paying off, of course, is for that service to be worth the money, you know, whatever sort of dollar figure they decide upon, it has to be worth that dollar figure for consumers to buy it, understanding and knowing that the best stuff on ESPN is still going to be on its linear channels, ESPN and ABC. So this strikes me as a really, one, a really good move for ESPN, and two, an interesting one for UFC. I don't know the world well enough to know how what the quality of these fights will be, but seems to me, you know, young demos, um, a sport that ESPN wants to be part of, given um, all the males who watch that sport. When you saw this deal this morning, what was your takeaway? Yeah, it was uh, kind of. This is the first shoe to drop. You know, the next one's going to be the broadcast deal, which is up at the end of this year as well. Um, that it's it's a big deal. It's not going to start till January first, um, and uh, I think it's going to be huge for you know. This is like I I think it's bigger than MLS or all the, or all, all the other current offerings on ESPN Plus, just because you got those exclusive fights that they're going to have. Um, UFC has about 40, 42 events per year, so they carve up. You know, they 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 carve it up for what's this year. It's like Fox Broadcasts, Fox. FS1, um, and then then they, they they also have their fight pass exclusive fights as well. So and uh, they so they they're going to carve that up. ESPN's going to going to get a decent chunk of the of of the fights going forward. The next thing is like who's going to have have the big package, which is going to if this one, ESPN paid, which I was able to confirm after John got it, um, was is paying 150, which is more than Fox is paying right now per year on, on its current seven-year deal wow. for broadcast. And and they built, I mean, FS2 is pretty much would die, <laughs> go back to Fuel TV, if if they lose uh, UFC. So I think that's the, I think you have to look at that is, is I know they bought New Lion, which is the streaming, the streaming partner for several years, um, and that 
could be uh, used as leverage if uh, against Fox or if, if Fox or another broadcast outlet. It's not going to be ESPN or ABC. That, that's this is pretty much going to be it as far as their involvement with UFC, which is major. I mean, they've got. You know, they that that was a huge deal today that they uh, that they uh, put forward. What uh, you know, again, I'm pretty much a novice when it comes to uh, UFC. What what is realistic for the quality of those fights, those events that ESPN is going to get versus you know the obviously the pay per views that we all sort of read about and see, which has the uh, you know the quality UFC fighters. It's going to be pretty. It's going to be a lot of the lower end, but you're not going to have you're not going to have the major major names. On there, you, you might have some guys going down the ladder that people still care about. You're going to have some fighters who are undefeated coming up that 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 people will, will, will want to watch. This is going to be the only place to watch them. They also got the um, they're going to have the contender series, which is another kind of um, kind of uh, kind of a feeder feeder type program um, that that's been on a fight pass. It started it debuted last year. It's still going now. It's going to go. It's it's not going to be on ESPN Plus until next June. But that's another exclusive, and then they'll have the content that um, of all the former, fi- like all the former, or all, all the all the old UFC fights will, will be accessible starting January first um, on on ESPN Plus. So for five dollars a month, it's not a it's and as along with the other content ESPN Plus already announced and already has going, you know that's that's going to be it's it's a, that could be that could really drive demand there. Yeah, I mean, listen, in the end, for ESPN, it's only money. So in that sense, they're just adding to their arsenal of these other, um, you know, this is no disrespect to UFC, but kind of niche packages. You know, if you're, if you're like an Ivy League sports fan, ESPN Plus is essentially going to be your go-to place for that coverage. You know, you want to see these UFC fights, you go there. You get enough of this inventory, and that's where you can convince the public to pay whatever, six bucks a month for this. Last one for me, AJ. Do you have any sense... Uh, from your reporting as to where you think ultimately the UFC is going to end up with its broadcast rights. Uh, Getting this 150 seems to be a pretty nice chunk of change for them, given that we've read so many stories about how the perception was that UFC maybe overvalued what their uh, rights deal was going to be to the market. Yeah, no, obviously the, the acquisition by WME, was uh, um, you know it was was major and they paid a lot of money for that um, which is now called Endeavor um, but they so they 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 pretty much banked on rights fees going up and they thought USC was 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 undervalued with the with the Fox deal but but looking back when I was working at Fox when when when, when they when they got it and I covered UFC for Fox uh, FoxSports.com it, it was a major deal and that it, they put a lot of weight behind it and them and some of the fights had haven't gone. Um, all that great, but they've had some great events as well, and it it also gives them content. And that's when you see how much you know Fox Fox Sports One and Fox Sports Two rely on UFC content, um, both in uh, daily programming and, and weekly programming, and also the live events. I mean, they it's you know they're they're going to have to you know, you know shell out some big bucks to keep it. Um, whether they there's been talk about you know them going over just circumventing a broadcast deal and going using their Using their streaming options to go straight, straight to the consumer, that could happen. But I think I think I think Fox and UFC seem like I think the marriage will continue. I'm well, we will find out in a few weeks. But um, I, obviously by by January first, well before that, what's going to happen? But we'll see if there's any other bidders in there that could uh, that could come in and uh, you know um, kind of take it away from Fox. Uh, one more for you, AJ, and I sort of bring both you guys into the sort of the next part is um, before we went on the air, you told me that one of the things that you're doing today 
was um, going to be working on this story that um, broke as we're taping this on uh, Toronto Blue Jays closer Roberto Osuna, who is now on administrative leave as uh, the team investigates um, what uh, charges uh, are against. The team investigates Osuna being charged with assault on um, early Tuesday morning. It's charged with assaulting a woman. It's not clear at the moment that this is a domestic violence incident, but at least early reports out of Toronto appear it might be. So um, it is, it's, it's, you know, unfortunately these stories just continue to come up and up and up. Mm-hmm. But for the purposes of this podcast, um, I, I am interested in, if you're an American reporter and you're not in Toronto, as you are, how do you go about trying to report this and to try to get information on it? Well, fortunately, I, or unfortunately, I covered the beer tosser uh, a couple years ago when the guy that threw the beer, uh, he ended up being a copy editor at uh, one of the, I think it was one of the Sutton newspapers. Um, and uh, you know, I covered that. So I, I, I reached out to my police contact, he emailed him and, uh, mm-hmm. and gave him a call. Uh, nothing back yet. But uh, it's basically, it's, it's not, for this part, it's, the courts are a lot harder to deal with. With the police, it's about the same as, as I would do for any other athlete who gets are accused of anything where you call the you call the PIO the public information officer and you just you just inquire ask questions um, a lot of the in the US you check the jail jail inmate uh, databases um, uh, as well um, and then we have court records that I dealt with today I dealt with uh, Ruben Foster earlier in my shift today um, and so it just it's, it's it's the same except for the courts courts I I didn't go to school to learn about the courts in Canada, so that's a little tough for me. But for the police, it's it's about it's it's about as uh, the same way as I would approach someone getting arrested in Atlanta or Houston or something. Lindsay, um, are you uh, you know one of the things that you you did a lot of um, stories at debts, but not necessarily that involve criminality, but that could be um, a, you know, a, a sort of along those lines. The one, obviously, that is. Mm-hmm. Particularly memorable to me was last year, last November, if I have it right, you wrote about um, a teen girl who posed for eight years as a married man to write about baseball and harass women. That story um, received a ton of attention, probably like a million pages or whatever it turned out to um, turned out to be. Do you miss that kind of work where, you know, one of the things obviously that you're going to do for you're doing for the athletic is a lot of day-to-day stuff just because obviously things happen for these two teams and there's an insatiable mm-hmm. demand for baseball content but that story that you did um for Deadspin I can only imagine how long it must have taken you to the catfishing story yeah minimum it took you a couple of weeks maximum it took you more you miss it all sort of <laughs> sinking your teeth into that kind of reporting well here's the uh dirty secret about that story I began reporting, writing, and published it within 24 hours. <laughs> what are you, a product? Are you a prodigy, Lindsay? <laughs> I mean, it's something I will never do again. Right. Like, <laughs> I uh, wore down my molars, grinding my teeth. But, you know, I think that is something that I would be able to do here because it was, I mean, it was kind of just a weird baseball story. And right, because true. I knew a lot of the people in the baseball blogosphere, I was able to get on the phone with them quickly. It's it's a different pace, and I think it's kind of like a a sense of changing my instincts. But you know, I mean, everyone's kind of made it clear that I can be really really flexible, and so 
um, you know, when those stories come come up, I, I don't feel like I will be necessarily restricted from it. And in all honesty, it's it's nice that if there's a couple days or a couple weeks where I'm kind of slow on, uh, you know, individually reported stories that I can just cover games. So <laughs> I would I would say overall the pace actually works for me for me better here. But it is kind of it's it's different not just kind of chasing things from the outside for sure. Yeah, no, I hope you get to stretch. Uh, one last one on this, and then we'll finish up on hockey. Um, what's uh, what's the biggest difference between working um, at Deadspin and working at the Athletic? Because you really um, you've really sort of shifted your, uh, I mean, it sort of goes without saying, that's a pretty big job shift in terms of what you were doing mm-hmm. at Deadspin to, you're doing a much more conventional job now, I think, in the quote-unquote mainstream sports media. So what what has that been like? Well, you know, the nice thing about Deadspin was it really gave me an opportunity to try a million different things, and at the end of the day, I figured out that what what works best for me is just reporting. You know, I went in there a very opinionated person and then learned that it made me feel very vulnerable. So now instead uh, I just get get to have actual players put themselves out there. But the biggest thing I've found is just being able to kind of bring a story across the finish line because at Deadspin, like I would see, you know, what a relief pitcher is doing or whatever. I would dig into the stuff on fan graphs and I could – you know, write about it that way. And so now if I do that and said player either tells me I'm off base or brushes me off or something like that, figuring out a way to, you know, kind of build upon what I would have done at Deadspin with more informed reporting is, is something I think I'm still figuring out. That That's interesting, AJ. And, um, Lindsay just said something that's pretty interesting to me in terms of sort of recognizing maybe what your, and she's young, obviously, sort of recognizing what your strengths are, especially when it comes to POV or some kind of yeah. writing that um, that calls for opinion or calls for a take. You At USA, yeah. at, it's, at USA Today, you know, I, I know your opinions, obviously, because you've been on this podcast, but I, I yeah. rarely get them when you work at USA Today. Are, I got to I got to blow up Mike Milbury during the Olympics. That oh, did fun. you? Well, my, yeah. what I what I was, that's pretty much it. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah. I feel like that's probably your patriotic work there. Uh, the uh, <laughs> but the reason I say that is, AJ, does it ever in the reverse of this or the counter? Does it ever frustrate you that you don't have that avenue the way Lindsay clearly did when she was at Deadspin? Oh no, I just go on Twitter and get in trouble with my with, <laughs> with our social media people. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's not. I've never been an opinion. I. I've always been kind of like what Lindsay mentioned. I'm, I'm more of a quick enterprise reporter. I'd rather not get into opinion. I'd rather stay away from politics. I was at the White House a couple of weeks ago for the for the U.S. Olympian visit um, and, and the Paralympians, and I just I just rather stay out of that kind of journalism anyway, um, and just chase stories I think people care about. Um, I've done some first person things. I, I did. I faced Alex Ovechkin in a story that uh, in, in a VR project and story that that we did about she's. 16 months ago I love and I've done other first person things and it's kind of it's and that's that's fun to be creative that way and writing first person I, I did a weight UFC weight cut lost 21 pounds in 21 days last year that was fun um not really S- send, me, but, send, uh, send me send me that story yeah. I may I may take advantage of that thank you yeah so I've been <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of first person things that they my editors are 
you know, they, they would probably allow me to, to, to do more opinionated stuff on, um, but I just, I just, I just don't, that's, I don't think that's my forte. A lot of people can, I'm not saying that better opinions than me, but can express them better. Cause I've been covering, I've been on the new side of sports for almost 20 years now. So I, I that's where I kind of, that's where I kind of fill in, especially with the, uh, with the crime and courts and now sports media that I think that's where, that's where I put, put my efforts mostly. It's good to hear because I think so often, I think the public is so used to blo- to people who are, uh, opinionists, including those who are really thoughtful opinionists and reported opinionists. And then, of course, you have bloviators. But it's actually good to hear, to, to sort of hear two people who um, really want to let the reporting speak for them. Um, that's actually refreshing to hear. Uh, all right, last one before we get, get you two out of here. Uh, Lindsay, you should weigh in. I don't even care if you don't follow the NHL. Um, the uh, Capitals and Lightning are going to be your Eastern Conference final. And as we tape this, it's either going to be Winnipeg or Nashville against Las Vegas. The Las Vegas story, by the way, is incredible to me. Uh, for, a ch- for a chance for an expansion team to win a major sports title, it makes my head spin. And I will continue to say that at least in terms of mainstream, it's not getting nearly enough attention. So, AJ, I'll start with you because I know you've covered uh, <laughs> hockey in the past. Well, what do you expect in terms of viewership potential for NBC? Like, I love this Vegas story, but but yeah. I have no idea if, like, uh, the casual sports fan in Birmingham or the casual sports fan in in um, Philadelphia is going to be paying attention to it. I will. Um, and then the Caps Lightning. Tampa is not a sort of a big time market, but Washington has uh, is a big market and has some interesting potential there. It's a hard one to figure out uh, in terms of yeah. the national viewership interest of a potential Stanley Cup. And it's, and it's hard. It's going to be. It's it's hard to judge the Knights right now because they. I think all but one of the games started at. Um, 10 o'clock Eastern. Um, so the viewership, it's hard to gauge. I know they were there. The window has been up the, that, that late window with the Knights has been up over last year. And it's so they, but that's, they're still pulling on around 0.6 or 1 million viewers or so. Um, so it's kind of hard to judge them, but yeah, there's a lot of people who've jumped on this, this Knights bandwagon and, and, and not just in Vegas, Vegas ha, ha, has embraced them, but a lot, a lot of people outside of, Vegas, who are just like all just have just glommed on and hopped on and are really care about the Knights. Um, and it's kind of weird being here in DC where it's like, wow, we actually advanced to a uh, to conference championship for the first time in she's 20 years. Yeah. In any, in any sport here. Yeah, I think people were confused. Like, we don't know, they don't know if they should be pessimistic like they always are or are actually going to be, uh, or they actually have or the four games away from the Cup, which they've only done once before. Um, so that it's going to be, I, I want to, if 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 the Knights continue and they win four more and they get into the into the final, I think it's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be some excitement there and just or just curiosity. How did an expansion team? Oh, well, we know how they spent five hundred million dollars and they had um, and George McPhee, the GM, made some great moves, but they also had these expansion draft rules that were a little more yeah. a little more advantageous. Still, to I mean, fa- yeah, more ever. favorable, but still. Uh, oh yeah! It's all so you got to do is go they, back, go back yeah. and look in August at the odds for the Vegas Knights. Oh yeah, two hundred to one to win. Yeah. Oh yeah, and 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 you go back and read the stories. Uh, I know some some reporters have actually reposted the stories from after the draft, <laughs> the, the expansion draft, and worst team ever. I'm like, yeah, and it's it's impressive what what what, what they've done. And Mark Andre Fleury, who's like, I think he's the nicest guy currently in sports that 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 that, 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 that I've covered. Um, and the most he was, the, he was treated treated us so well when he was in Pittsburgh, and I think a lot of a lot of uh, you know journalists are kind of privately like, hey, this is not a bad you know he's having having a guy like that. He kind of got he lost his job in Pittsburgh, 
goes goes to Vegas and he's you know he he, he won several of the games for him already, but it's almost single handedly this 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 postseason. Um, and I, I think there, there's a lot of that. You know, you really can't you, you can't hate Mark Andre Fleury. It's kind of really hard. Um, and uh, and it's uh, you see the memes about you know <laughs> him in Pittsburgh the last couple of days and pretty funny. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see what the ratings having Pittsburgh balanced, even though they won the last two years what that means to ratings uh, and viewership because they're a very popular team. Um, but if the, if the, if it's a Cavs Knights final, I think that would be the best of, of the teams remaining. That would be the best scenario um, right now. Yeah. Nash, I mean, uh, no matter what on the West jets, uh, jets Knights or uh, Preds Knights going to be amazing to watch in terms of just the energy. Those are three of the best buildings in the NHL, if not the best Lindsay, you have a, uh, you have a thought on any of this? Um, I know nothing about hockey, but I've had a couple conversations with a Mets reliever who's from Las Vegas, and it's it's actually really interesting to me to, you know, hear him talk about how exciting it is that they have a professional team in Vegas and kind of what what it's meant to him that the players and the team immediately embedded themselves in the Vegas community outside of the Strip, especially, you know, even after the the shooting last year, um, you know, and how growing up, like there were no regional sports networks and things like that. So it's just, he said, it's, he said it's fun and it's a fun way for the, because there are a number of baseball players from Vegas and he said, it's been a fun way for them to stay connected and stuff. So I've enjoyed that, even though if he got into the nitty gritty, I would probably just check out. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, the Raiders are coming to Vegas, and I think Bryce Bryce Harper is Bryce Bryce Harper is a Vegas guy. Am I yeah, right about that? Yeah. yeah. So there you yeah. go. Um, yeah, I got some flack. I I got some flack for calling the, the a couple of days ago. I called the Golden Knights a sideshow until they. I the, saw on um, Twitter, AJ. The, you you, yeah, you, you claim you don't down. want to get into Twitter fights, but yet. Uh, you know, oh, no, I don't you're, say that. you're out there I, like I don't, uh, I don't wanna, yeah. <laughs> you're out there like Conor McGregor, basically starting trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I, it, it, yeah, it, I call them a sideshow until they you know, they they get their NFL team. But um, that that'll be. I mean, but they they're all oh, it's homegrown. I'm like homegrown is the team's nine months old. I mean, really. I mean, so I was I was kind of going back and forth a little bit. All right, uh, email all that stuff to AJ, not to Lindsay. And <laughs> um, all right, Lindsay Adler is uh, a a. Should I even call you a staff writer or a senior writer? I don't even know what your title is, Lindsay. Baseball writer? Uh, baseball writer. All right. I don't know. Lindsay Adler is a baseball <laughs> writer for the, the teams. Yeah, she's for she she writes for the Athletic. She covers the Mets and the Yankees, um, and pretty awesome by the way. Check out uh, her recent work uh, on the uh, two Yankee rookies who are blowing up, including Gleyber Torres, uh, who really totally looks like the real deal. My God, the Yankees are, <laughs> they're so annoying. Like, but they got Gleyber, they they got Chapman. They trade. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. They traded Chapman, right? They got Gleyber Torres from the Cubs. The guy's an incredible yep. prospect, and then they got Chapman back in free agency. It's that's the Yankees yep. in a nutshell. Um, I got to give Brian Cashman credit. He is really a good GM, even though with gotta the all give him credit for a lot of things. Yeah, even with all his advantages, the the guy has been a great GM. All right, so that check Lindsey Adler's work out at um, the Athletic and uh, follow her on Twitter. It's her name L I N D S E Y A D L E R. At Lindsey Adler, AJ Perez uh, works for USA Today. You can catch uh, his work for that publication, and he is you are by AJ Perez on Twitter. Am I right about that? Yeah, by AJ Perez. Yeah, that's right. And clearly, he's ready to basically fight you, no matter what the topic <laughs> is. So go out there. No, he's except I, 
except MLS. I really, I'm, I don't pay attention. Adrian will not fight you in MLS. So it's, again, it's at B-Y-A-J-P-E-R-E-Z. We'll have both these guys back. Uh, thank you guys for joining us on the, on the, our two roundtables today, and uh, we'll definitely have you back on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, AJ. Thank no you. Thanks for having me. Good day. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Peter King, Lindsay Adler, AJ Perez, Chad Finn, Robert Littell, and, of course, my producer, Lou Pellegrino. Previous podcasts, if you want to check them out, on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Doris Burke and Cheryl Reeve were episode four. They were terrific. Of course, Doris Burke, the, uh, the great ESPN analyst, Cheryl Reeve, the GM and coach of the world champion Minnesota Lynx. Before that, Vern Lundquist, a 71-minute conversation with the CBS broadcasting legend. And before that, a conversation on baseball writing with Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal. For Lou Pellegrino, this is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs>